Hey there, welcome back. It occurred to me that we didn't finish watching the fifty fifty insane declassified FBI secrets. I didn't tell you about. You want me to play a fake game? This looks kind of cool. Wish me luck. Okay, so we're gonna start off and get three, I guess. I'll get that barrel and get to do a silent of the FBI's most wanted criminals. Number ten is Joe Sands. Some criminals enjoy taking the lives of others, particularly when it comes to mass murderers and serial killers. However, Joe Sands of the Quattro Flats gang earned the nickname Smiley for a quite disturbing reason. He had a tendency to be downright jolly when killing people. He was caught on camera happily smiling and greeting others as he walked toward the front of a house. The man there owed Sands money, and he rubbed his hands together eagerly. Sands then pulled out a gun, shot the man again and again, and continued on nonchalantly. Those who viewed the footage likely had to rewind to be sure of what had even happened. Unsurprisingly, it was not the first crime he was known for. A decade earlier, he walked up to two rival gang members, shot them multiple times at point-blank range, and then sauntered off quite casually. We can bet he was smiling as he left. He also raped and killed his own child's mother, thinking she would rat him out to the authorities. These violent tendencies, far from a liability, actually got him promoted. He went from a small-time gang to a member of an international drug trafficking organization. Once he made the FBI's most wanted, he planned to kill whoever would ultimately discover him. Given his history, everyone knew he would do just that if given the opportunity. In fact, by the time he was caught, he was feared by both rival gangs as well as his own. Fortunately for them all, he will end his life behind bars. Number 9 is Gary Ray Bowles. Bowles began his life of crime in Florida when he both beat and strangled the man he was living with for unknown reasons. He then went to Maryland where he crossed paths with David Jarman, who he also strangled before robbing. Weeks after this, he was in Georgia staying with a 72-year-old man who died similarly to the others. His next murder was the most brutal, though. Albert Morris had been gagged and beaten, shot with a shotgun, and strangled. Bowles stayed in the home of his next and last victim for days with the body in the back room. Clearly, he had an indifference to human life and thought nothing of choking, shooting, and beating people to death. Many who viewed the scenes of his crimes noted that his brutality was far beyond what was necessary. Due to the nature of his crimes, Bowles was sentenced to death twice. Initially, it was reversed by the Florida Supreme Court, but then he was given the same sentence yet again. Number 8 is Richard Lee Tingler Jr. On one September morning in 1968, the bodies of four adults were discovered in an Ohio park. They'd been shot at least once in the head, if not multiple times. A little over a month later, a 15-year-old boy and an 18-year-old girl working in a store were tied up and robbed. The thief decided to leave no witnesses. Removing the door from the safe, he used it to savagely beat the teens and then shot each in the head. The store owner, who was also present, somehow survived. She had been strangled with a wire hanger, but it knocked her unconscious and the thief didn't quite finish the job. Richard Lee Tingler was eventually suspected of the attacks through various evidence. He made the most wanted fugitives list in December of 1968 and began to use a fake identity to escape punishment. A few months later, he killed a 49-year-old man and robbed him of his vehicle and money. However, at this point, his days were numbered and he had drawn quite a bit of attention. Further, he looked a lot like the man in the FBI's most wanted poster. He was apprehended and the cost of his crimes was death. Number seven is Eric Rudolph. 
Eric Rudolph carried out the bombings in the South starting in the summer of 1996 when he placed a bomb concealed with a backpack in a busy Atlanta park. He had put nails in the device so they would work as shrapnel and shatter bone and slice apart skin, flesh, and blood vessels. Two people were killed while over 100 others were hurt when it went off. His purpose was to cancel the Olympics and make the government take a financial hit due to its stance on abortion. However, that was just part of his plan, and he went on to cause three more explosions. With these, he made it so that additional bombs would follow the first in hopes of injuring those responding to the scene. The targets included an abortion clinic and a gay nightclub, resulting in several injuries. The last explosion was at another clinic in Alabama, which killed an officer but left a witness. This person had license plate numbers which led police straight to Rudolph. Police found evidence in his house that implicated him in the bombings, but he fled to escape punishment. Caught not long after, he now faces five life sentences. Number six is Christopher Wilder. Christopher Wilder was known for his hand in construction and real estate, but began a second occupation in 1984. For about a month and a half, he became a murderer as he drove from Florida to California and after that to New York. Preying on attractive women everywhere, he became known as the Beauty Queen Killer. Sadly, he was quite successful at what he did. He abducted a minimum of 12 women during his journey and killed 8 of them by the time it ended. Hardly a looker himself, he attracted the ladies by showing off his shiny cars and fancy real estate. He also bought cameras and would lure them in by promising to take modeling pictures. In February, Rosario Gonzalez disappeared and Elizabeth Kenyon, who had dated Wilder, vanished after rejecting a proposal of marriage. Both were placed in locations with Wilder before they went missing. Private investigators soon leaked his description to the press, and after withdrawing cash, he fled the area. It was Linda Grover who had wanted to be on a magazine cover that later identified him. Wilder had hit, strangled, and shocked her, and even glued her eyes closed, yet somehow she survived. In fact, she screamed loudly enough to scare him off. Still, he wasn't caught, and so another woman was drugged, stabbed, beaten, and tossed in the woods. Fortunately, she lived, while others didn't. He continued this behavior as he passed through additional states until he snatched his very last victim. He was then shot and killed in Canada while fighting an officer for his gun. Number five is James Whitey Bulger. James Bulger was arrested at the age of 13 and would spend the rest of his life in and out of prison. This included a 1956 arrest for bank robberies in three states. After nine years behind bars, he... I like it. It's mine. He joined the Winter Hill Gang before befriending Stephen J. Flemmy. Flemmy would become his partner in crime as well as a fellow FBI informant. Both men reported on the Mafia for the benefit of the U.S. government. Being informants hardly tempered their own activities. Both are linked to many crimes and Bolter has ties to as many as 19 homicides. Some of these were members of rival gangs, such as James O'Toole, who was shot by an automatic rifle before taking a bullet to the head. Others were suspected of providing the FBI with damaging information on Bolger, such as John B. Callahan, who died by brutal execution-style shot to the back of the head. There were also people in the wrong place at the wrong time, such as Michael Donahue or Michael Milano. Both were simply too close to the intended target. It didn't seem to matter to Bolger one bit how many people he killed or for what reason. However, his own welfare was certainly important. He fled and spent the next 16 years in hiding before he and his girlfriend were apprehended in 2012. At his trial, Bolger claimed that he had been granted immunity by the Department of Justice in exchange for his services as an informant. However, this claim was ignored, and he was found guilty for his role in a staggering 11 homicides. Number four is Ted Bundy. 
Bundy landed a spot on the FBI's top 10 fugitives list in February of 1978. Five days later, he was arrested after going too fast in a vehicle he had stolen. Years would pass before he met his end in an electric chair called Old Sparky. And those <laughs> outside the prison set off fireworks after his execution. But what did he do for his death to be celebrated like the 4th of July? His time of crime began in the mid-70s, when women began to disappear in Washington and Oregon. When he moved to Utah for school, women went missing there too. Turns out he was murdering them. He would often pretend to need help or be a figure of authority and lure victims to remote locations. Once there, he would rape and beat them to death. And that's not even the worst of it. He would revisit the scenes of the crimes to carry out various sexual acts on the bodies. This continued until they were too badly decomposed to make it possible. He also had a collection of human heads in his home. Bundy escaped suspicion because he was attractive and charming. And at one point, he even convinced a mayor to write him a letter of recommendation. This likely became quite an embarrassment later. After all, Bundy was a serial killer and one of the most depraved to ever live. Before his death, Bundy admitted he killed 36 women, but many think it's over 100. Number three is Rafael Caro Quintero, the narco of narcos, who helped create the Guadalajara cartel. He made large profits off of shipments of marijuana that were brought into the United States. But he is known for much more than trafficking drugs. In addition to countless other atrocities, he allegedly abducted DEA agent Enrique Camarena, his pilot, an American writer, and a dentistry student. He then tortured and murdered them. As far as the writer and the student, their offense was to have accidentally disrupted a party. As punishment, they were taken into a room and tortured while questioned. The writer died due to blunt force trauma while the student was buried alive. They were not discovered until months had passed. Some suspect that Quintero thought they were spies, which they weren't. Undercover DEA agent Enrique Camarena was very much a spy and had done considerably worse. He had brought authorities to one of Quintero's marijuana ranches and 10,000 tons of plants were destroyed. Over one and a half hundred million in profits were lost. Quintero wanted revenge. He had Camarena and his pilot kidnapped, and they were delivered to him at the Guadalajara residence. When he first saw Camarena, he gave him a hug before leading him to a room where he was hit and burned nonstop for hours. It's believed a physician injected him with something as he passed out, so he would wake up and be tortured some more. During this process, a man would later allege the Mexican defense minister, interior minister, federal judicial police director, and Mexican Interpol director were in the living room listening. By the time Camarena died, it was morning. His and his pilot's bodies were found in the ground wrapped in plastic and filled with bullets. Quintero is still at large after he was released on a strange technicality and fled before he was recaptured. Number two is Ramzi right. Ahmed Youssef. As a young man, Youssef studied bomb-making and recruited terrorists on Al-Qaeda's behalf. Soon, his role expanded. He met with Oman Abdel Rahman, a cleric in New York, for the support and materials for an attack on the World Trade Center there. He planned it out and helped with the design of a 1,500-pound bomb. This was then driven into the building's garage. When it went off, six were killed and more than a thousand more were injured. However, this one success was followed by multiple failures. Youssef allegedly plotted to kill the Pakistani leader, Benazir Bhutto, but first explosives went off in his face, and then a sniper's gun was delayed in transit. He was also linked to the attempted bombing of the Bangkok-based Israeli embassy. However, when the man driving the bomb got in an accident, he fled, leaving the explosives to be discovered. Yusuf's idea of sneaking liquid nitroglycerin into 11 U.S. planes and then exploding them over the Pacific Ocean was not a success either. Asked to assassinate President Clinton, he believed it was too complex, and though he tested the method to kill the Pope, 
he never implemented it. So while he killed several and injured hundreds, he wasn't the smartest criminal out there. In fact, he was mixing up chemicals when he started a fire that drew police to the scene. He fled, but left behind key evidence on planned acts of terrorism. Just one month later, he had been captured and sentenced to life in prison. And there was more than enough evidence against him. Number one is Osama bin Laden. As a young man, bin Laden came to believe in the ideas of Abdullah Azam. These were that Muslims should wage jihad or holy war and form one Islamic state. When the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 1979, bin Laden went with Azam to support the rebels and recruit others to join the movement. Their success gave him confidence, and he created Al-Qaeda with the goal of carrying out more symbolic acts of terror. The group caused a lot of destruction. It arms fiberglass models, durable composites, polymers, thermoplastics. Armed Somali soldiers who killed 18 Americans and was implicated in the New York World Trade Center bombing that same year. There is also evidence it tried to kill the Egyptian president, bombed a U.S. training facility, and brought down an American military building within a few years. By 1998, over 200 people had died and thousands more were injured in explosions at several embassies. This landed bin Laden on the FBI's most wanted list, but his crimes only continued. In 2000, he took credit for the bombing of an American warship which killed another 17. While indicted of the bombings, bin Laden lost no time and went about planning the attacks of September 11, 2001. This was the biggest strike yet, with the Pentagon and the World Trade Center as targets. 2,753 people died as a result. However, in May of 2011, President Obama was able to state that justice had been done and the bloodthirsty Al-Qaeda leader was dead. His body was shipped by an aircraft carrier into the Indian Ocean and buried there in an underwater grave. Wanted, a reward is being offered for this fugitive by the FBI. The poster stares back at you with ten sinister-looking faces, the worst of the worst, so notorious that the FBI is offering a massive reward for anyone who provides information leading to their capture. Who are the FBI's ten most wanted in the year 2021? Number 10. Yasser Abdel Saeed Saeed began his life in a humble way as an immigrant from Egypt in 1983. He soon married an American woman 15 years his junior. They had a son and two daughters. He became a citizen, and there was a dark side to this American success story. His daughters, Amina and Sarah, soon started telling their friends and family that their father was abusive. The girls would occasionally show up with bruises and injuries at school. They reported that their father spied on them, with Sarah even finding out that he was spying on her at her part-time job but his obsession was about to take an even darker turn. Amina covertly started dating a boy, and when Saeed planned to move the family, she planned to run away with her boyfriend. Eventually, Patricia had enough of her husband and left with the girls, only for Yasser to follow them. He convinced his wife to return home with the girls, and when the teenagers refused, Saeed shot them both and killed them. Saeed then went on the run, assumed to have fled back to Egypt, but he was later seen as a cab driver around New York City. He spent 12 years on the FBI's most wanted list with a reward of $100,000 offered for his capture. In 2020, he was found in Texas and he and his son were arrested. He currently awaits trial on capital murder charges, but remains on the list because his case is ongoing. But this next fugitive is still in the wild. Number 9. Robert William Fisher A Navy veteran and firefighter, Fisher seemed like the picture of an all-American guy in 2001, but his public face hit a darker side. His wife and two kids lived in fear of his explosive temper. He was reportedly deeply bitter over his own parents' divorce, and he was controlling toward his wife and children. He displayed other bizarre behavior, like shooting stray dogs and smearing animal blood on his face. 
But no one expected what was to come on April 9th, 2001, when people in the neighborhood heard a terrible argument at the Fisher home. Then the explosion happened. The house blew up the next morning, and firefighters battled the fast-moving blaze before finding the bodies of Fisher's wife and kids in the house. But they hadn't died in the fire. They had been murdered. Fisher was on the run, having been seen at an ATM hours before the explosion. He was indicted for three counts of first-degree murder, but has managed to stay ahead of police for 20 years now. His military background and his experience as a hunter makes him a particularly dangerous fugitive, and the FBI has offered $100,000 for information leading to his capture. This next fugitive was basically a ghost. Number 8. Alexis Flores It was summer 2000 when Philadelphia resident Jorge Contreras took pity on a homeless drifter calling himself Carlos. He gave the unfortunate man shelter, gave him clothing to wear, and paid for his work as a handyman. But this would lead to a horrifying discovery. Carlos had used his shelter to store the body of Ariana de Jesus, a little girl who had been missing for several days. Contreras recognized the shirt she was wrapped in as being the one he had given to Carlos, and a manhunt began for the drifter. But who actually was Carlos? All they had of him was a vague sketch, including a distinctive scar he had on his neck. Two years later, an undocumented immigrant named Alexis Flores would be arrested for shoplifting in Arizona, and the charges would later be upgraded due to false documents. He was deported to Honduras after his prison term, and that would be a terrible mistake. In 2007, his DNA would be matched to the DeJesus murder. Carlos finally had a name, but he was out of the FBI's reach now, and the U.S. and Honduras do not have an extradition treaty. The FBI is offering $100,000 for information leading to his capture, and Interpol is involved as well, but he remains at large. This next fugitive began his crime spree at the most humble of locations. Number 7. Madrash Kumar Chitinbhai Patel One of the youngest fugitives on the list, Patel seemed like a normal young man in India. He had married his wife, Palak, by 2015, and the young couple had traveled to the United States to visit relatives. Their visit became an extended one and they took a job at a local Dunkin' Donuts owned by his relative, where they worked the night shift together on April 12th. But only one of them would leave that night. They walked into the camera, disappeared off the view of the camera, and then Patel left alone and closed the store. The next people in the store would find something horrible. When no one seemed to be on staff, customers approached a police officer and found Palak's body in the back, beaten and stabbed. They quickly fingered her husband for the killing, but Patel had already escaped. He was last seen taking a hotel shuttle to the airport, and authorities believe he may have fled back to India or be hiding with relatives. What turned this young man into a murderer? Relatives report his wife wanted to return home to India. Wherever he is now, he's been on the run since 2015, and the FBI thinks he's worth a $100,000 reward. But youth is no deterrent for this next criminal. Number 6. Alejandro Castillo it was 2016, and a 17-year-old Castillo worked at a Greek-themed restaurant in Charlotte, North Carolina, but he was more interested in girls than his job. He had eyes in particular for his co-worker, Troop Kwan Sandy Lili, who was six years older than him. They briefly dated, and she even lent him some money, which he never paid back. But even as he went on to dating another co-worker, he never stopped thinking about Sandy, and that fixation soon turned into a dangerous obsession, and then Sandy disappeared. Investigations showed that Castillo had contacted her saying he would pay her back. Instead, he took her at gunpoint to an ATM and made her empty her bank account. He then drove her to the woods, shot her, and dumped her body in a ravine. The teenage murderer then fled in her car along with his new girlfriend, Ahima Feister. 
They headed to the border and crossed into Mexico, but only a few months later, Feaster turned herself into authorities. She cooperated for a lesser sentence and reported that Castillo had gone missing while they were in Mexico, disappearing off the radar. He's still at large, with a $100,000 award offered for his capture. He wasn't the only Romeo-turned-murderer on the list. Number 5. Arnoldo Jimenez Everything seemed to be going right for Arnaldo Jimenez and Estela Carrera. They were happily engaged, had a two-year-old daughter along with Jimenez's nine-year-old daughter from a previous relationship. And on May 11, 2012, they were married at Chicago City Hall. They celebrated at a nightclub with their friends and family and then drove home in Jimenez's car. That's when things took a dark turn. The newlyweds started arguing and Carrera quickly discovered that her husband had a dark side. It would be a one-night marriage. Jimenez stabbed his wife fatally and dragged her body into their apartment, leaving it in the bathtub in her wedding dress. When she never picked up her children, she was reported missing, and her body was found by police, and Jimenez had disappeared. Police tracked him from Illinois to Tennessee to Arkansas to Texas and eventually to Mexico. They were able to arrest Get an unlimited phone plan starting at $80 per month for your family on Google Fi Wireless. In arrest his brother for drugs and find more evidence linking him to the murder, but he remains a fugitive with a $100,000 bounty south of the border. Age was no barrier for this next criminal in the other direction. Number four, Eugene Palmer. It was 2012 when Eugene Palmer lived next to his son and daughter-in-law in Stony Point, New York. The 73-year-old man watched as his son's marriage fell apart, and eventually his daughter-in-law, Tammy, filed for a restraining order and threatened divorce. This could cause Eugene to have to leave his home, and he wouldn't stand for that. A nasty feud began between Eugene and his daughter-in-law, and on September 24th, he took action. Tammy walked her children to the bus, returned home, and suddenly came under fire. Eugene was targeting her with a shotgun, and after three shots, he finished the job. The senior sharpshooter then fled the scene in a pickup truck, which he abandoned later and fled into the woods. Police led a hunt in the woods with dogs, which tracked his scent to a campground, but no trace of him was ever found. His family believes he is likely dead. After all, how far could a diabetic man with a heart condition now pushing 80 get? But the FBI disagrees. They pointed out that Palmer was an avid outdoorsman and could easily have survived in the woods and fled to another state. And they've offered a $100,000 reward for his capture. But some fugitives command a higher price. Number three. Jason Derrick Brown. Jason Derrick Brown had a very unlikely beginning for a wanted fugitive. He was a devout Mormon who served a missionary and owned a toy business. But he had a taste for expensive vehicles and was deeply in debt. He escalated from fraud to theft and home invasions to a robbery that went horribly wrong. In 2004, he bought a Glock pistol and went to a local AMC theater in Phoenix. There, armored car guard Robert Keith Palomares was collecting the weekend box office. A hooded gunman came out of nowhere and shot him six times, killing him. The gunman fled with $56,000. It wasn't long before the killing would be linked to Brown. They found his bicycle and found the amateur robber's DNA on it. He was quickly charged with first-degree murder and unlawful flight, but by then he had fled to Las Vegas. Authorities found his car abandoned, and his brother was later charged with obstruction of justice for helping him dispose of evidence. Brown's case became notorious, and sightings of him came from across the United States, Mexico, and Canada. But the genuine article has eluded capture for over 15 years, and the FBI has offered a $200,000 reward for his capture. But the FBI also has their eye on some much larger-scale criminals. Number 2. Jose Rudolfo Villarreal Hernandez. 
Villaria Hernandez was born into a life of violence. His father was a member of the Beltran Leva cartel in Mexico and was murdered by the rival Gulf cartel. It was no surprise that Villaria Hernandez's involvement in the family business only got more intense and he had a target in mind for revenge, Juan Jesus Guerrero Chapa, a powerful lawyer for the Gulf cartel, now living in South Lake, Texas, and an informant for U.S. law enforcement. But that wouldn't stop Villaria Hernandez, who hired a crew to sneak into the U.S. And on May 22, 2013, they would strike. As Guerrero entered his car, two assassins pulled up and fired multiple shots at him. He was killed immediately. While the assassins escaped, three men connected to their hiring were arrested and named Villarreal Hernandez as the mastermind. While he remains at large in Mexico, the FBI is on the hunt and has offered a million-dollar reward for his arrest. But they're not the only ones looking. Guerrero's sister targeted one of Villarreal Hernandez's relatives in revenge, even sending her brother's hitman a picture of the severed head. With enemies like this, Villarreal Hernandez may want to think about turning himself in. But there's one fugitive more wanted than a cartel hitman, a cartel ringleader. Number one, Rafael Caro Quintero. Rafael Caro Quintero had humble beginnings as a farmer, but his crop of choice would lead to a lot of trouble. He grew marijuana, and that turned him from a simple worker into a local land baron. He worked for many of Mexico's most notorious gang leaders and became a successful drug trafficker in the 1970s. But he would soon branch out on his own, and he formed the Guadalajara Cartel. He shipped mass quantities of marijuana to the United States, but would be most notorious for his kidnapping, torture, and murder of U.S. DEA agent Enrique Camarena and four others. He would eventually be sentenced to 40 years in prison for murder in Mexico. But there's a twist to his story coming. A state court ruled that he'd been tried improperly and ordered him set free in 2013. This caused outrage across the border and diplomatic pressure forced Mexico to reopen an investigation. They eventually issued a new arrest warrant and U.S. and Mexican forces continue to pursue him to this day. He remains at large, with his attorneys trying to get the charges dismissed but failing. With Interpol and the FBI looking for him, the notorious drug kingpin commands the highest reward for any criminal on the FBI's most wanted list. A stunning $20 million. See any of them in your neighborhood? Keep your eyes open and approach carefully. September 23, 1983. It's the end of the evening shift for the staff at the Kentucky Fried Chicken outlet in Kilgore, Texas. As the last customers leave, there's a lot of laughing and joking. It's Friday night. Time to have some fun. The main door then swings open. A warm breeze hits the startled staff. We're close, says the assistant manager. None of them return home that night. The next time anyone sees them, they're lying dead on the ground, executed. Let's now try our best to understand what happened that night. First, the victims. They were Opie Hughes, 39, Mary Tyler, 37, David Maxwell, 20, Joey Johnson, 20, and Monty Landers, 19. Tyler was the assistant manager. Hughes was one of the staff, as were Johnson and Maxwell. Landers shouldn't have even been there that day. He just popped in to see the two young men. We know that the staff had already pretty much finished up for the night. They'd almost finished cleaning up the place. The money had been counted, and the franchise headquarters had been called and been told about the takings. During the call, though, some voices could be heard in the back possibly the voices of the killers. That phone call was the last time anyone heard the staff speak, besides the killers, of course. At around 11 p.m., Mary... Switch to the Google Fi Wireless Flexible Plan and only pay for the data you use. You get four lines with unlimited... Mary Tyler's daughter, Kim, walked into the restaurant expecting to see her mom. What she found instead was an eerie silence. Perplexed and shouting her mom's name, she looked down at the floor. She panicked when she saw fresh blood. The cops were soon on the scene, but none of the staff could be found. 
At first, police assumed that some hijinks had taken place and the staff maybe had a fight or someone had an accident and possibly they were all nearby. No one thought massacre, but that's what it was. The next day, about 15 miles from the restaurant at a remote field close to an oil well, all five victims were found. The first police on the scene couldn't believe what they saw. It looked like an execution from a war crime photograph. All the victims were lying face down in the grass and dirt, their arms tucked under their bodies, their heads all pointing northward. Four of them were close together, while the other body of Obi Hughes lay not so far away. They'd all been shot in the back of the head, with at least one of them also taking a bullet to the back. Danny Pirtle, who would lead the investigation, later said in court that it was plainly obvious how they died without having to wait for autopsy. What he didn't know is that the carnage he was looking at would become one of the worst unsolved crimes in modern U.S. history. Well, it remained unsolved for over two decades and, to some extent, still is partially unsolved, but we'll get around to that. As some of you sleuths out there already know, a lot of murders are committed by people very close to the victim. You rarely have to look further than a spurned ex-lover, a jilted friend, or an angry business associate to find the person responsible. But in this case, things just didn't look that way. The murderers got away with around $2,000 that night, but even so, killing five people over such a small sum didn't make sense. What's more, it wasn't as if the staff were all connected other than the fact that they worked together. Sure, the young guys were friends, but police knew fairly certain that they weren't involved in gangs or high-level drug activity, and they weren't prone to hanging out with women in their late 30s. The crime looked like the work of a maniac. But then, the most messed up killers out there don't tend to take the money, too. They kill for fun, for sport, to attend to some crazed sexual fetish, but they don't usually run off with the loot. At first, the investigators wondered if the murders had anything to do with the methamphetamine ring that had filled the streets of Kilgore with that pernicious drug. They knew that the ring was looking for a new recipe for cooking meth. Aside from that, after prolonged binges, meth heads do tend to lose the plot sometimes. But when they spoke to the manager of the branch, the manager said, no way. Those folks were not part of any ruthless criminal gang. They weren't meth sellers, and she believed they weren't even meth consumers. Speaking later of one of the 20-year-old men, she said they were good, they were exceptional, they were good kids. The police started looking at Kim, Mary's 17-year-old stepdaughter. She recently started working at that KFC, and she had a somewhat checkered past for a young person. So much so, she spent some time at the Louisiana home for girls after exhibiting behavioral problems. But why would she have had her mother killed? Why would this young woman have a beef with a bunch of guys just a little older than her. That line of inquiry led to nothing because Kim had absolutely no reason to have anyone shot. It seemed to the police that a robbery had taken place, but perhaps one or more of the staff had refused to hand over the cash. Some kind of fight ensued in which one of the staff was injured. Not wanting to leave any witnesses, the gunman then abducted the staff and took them to that oil field to kill them. Still, the autopsy didn't state that anyone had died before anyone else. It revealed that all of them were lined up at the oil field and they were shot one by one. Only Hughes, who was dragged away, was shot separately. There were few clues to work with. Cops found a fingernail in the clothing of one of the bodies. They found traces of another human on Hughes's body. But the best clue was a bit of blood on the ground and a blood-stained napkin lying nearby. As we said, there was also some blood in the restaurant. It didn't look as though it had come from any of the victims. Perhaps, the police thought, one of the staff really had put up a good fight and injured one of the perpetrators. People came forward and said they saw a van at the restaurant that night, which could have taken the victims away. But there was no CCTV back then in the area, and those witness statements were vague at best. Police 
Police also looked at two men named Romeo Pinkerton and Darnell Hartsfield. They were cousins and they both had a checkered past, while another man linked to those two was also on the police radar. But then jail records seemed to point to the fact that Hartsfield was in jail at the time of the murders, so that trail went dry. Such a slaying, something of the utmost brutality, put a lot of pressure on the cops. That's not always a good thing. It can make police join too many dots, and as we all know, many an innocent man has gone to jail when the police can't quite look past the picture they've already formed in their mind. It's called having a cognitive bias, and quite a few people have spent time on death row because of it. The police were quick to join the dots when they were arresting a man named James Earl Mankins Jr. He had a pretty colorful rap sheet, mostly for drug convictions. Notably, Mankins' father was a state representative. Police discovered that the fingernail they found looked as though it came from him. He was also missing a bit of his. A man named James Rowe said he approached the police by himself a few months after the crime. That night, he said he saw a man driving a van, and he noticed that in the back of the van were people wearing uniforms. What's scary is he said he heard them yelling and screaming. He also said the driver of the van was a white guy with long hair and a beard. That fit the description of Mankins, although Rowe was never asked to testify. Why people never approached him again, we don't know. It wasn't until 20 years later that he did testify, and he said he went to school with Mankins, and the man in the van wasn't him. Later, in 1995, DNA evidence pointed to Mankins' innocence, and the case against him was dropped. Some years later, it would be discovered that this fingernail the police had been so dead set on investigating actually came from one of the victims. Mankins later told the press, the worst part was the six months in jail over there, thinking about being put to death for something I didn't do, and more than likely, if it wasn't for that DNA, I would have been on death row. The case went cold again, and it looked as though they'd never find the killers. A detective later admitted that the police had spent way too much time focusing on Mankins. Tunnel vision is an investigator's worst enemy. So, sometime later, the Russ County Sheriff's Office called a former FBI agent named George Kinney and asked him to look at the case from different angles. It seemed to Kinney that, given the severity of the crimes, whoever had done it had very likely committed more crimes in the years that had passed. It would be fair to assume, he thought, that the murderers were in prison for crimes. Hey guys, welcome to the Brian Show. Let's test this treacherous set that I got from as he began his investigation in the early 2000s. In 2001, a forensic scientist named Lorna Beasley retested the DNA evidence the police had and ran it through something called the Combined DNA Data Indexing System. That way, she could ascertain if the DNA from the blood found at the crime scene matched the DNA of violent offenders currently behind bars. Two names popped up. They were Romeo Pinkerton and Darnell Hartsfield. Huh, she thought. Those guys were suspects at the start, but we rubbed them from the list when it was discovered one of them was in jail when the murders happened. That wasn't true. The cops had messed up in that regard. On the night of the slayings, he'd been out of prison two days. But the evidence still wasn't enough to charge the men for their crime. It took two more years for a Texas Attorney General prosecutor, Lisa Tanner, to get on the case. She had doubts about finding the culprits so many years after the crime. Witnesses were getting old, and she said there were quite a few holes in the entire story. She also realized that DNA evidence pointed to three men committing the crime, not two. What she needed was DNA from one of the two suspects for whom she did have names. One of them was Hartsfield, and investigators got a break in 2003 when he was arrested. Now, investigators just needed a DNA sample from him, but he wasn't exactly forthcoming about that. So, investigators embarked on a plan that had fooled many criminals in the past, offering drinks or chewing gum and then testing the remains. With Hartsfield, they got an added bonus. He flat out refused to give investigators a DNA sample, and that was his legal right. He even stated that in a letter. Oops. Tanner later told the press this. He told us he wasn't going to give us his blankety-blank DNA. 
And then he was so adamant about it, he wrote us a letter saying, I'm not giving you my DNA, and you can't make me give you my DNA. And then, of course, he licked the envelope and sent it to us. In 2007, facing the death penalty due to the new DNA evidence, he admitted to murdering those five people. Still, he said he only did so because five life sentences was better than a shot of lethal drugs into the arm. Pinkerton also received five life sentences. Hartsfield has since spoken from his cell, and he hasn't changed his story of being innocent. He once said, I might have had crimes that I did do. You know what I'm saying? But no one ever got hurt. I would never kill these people. And from day one, I have stated my innocence, and I'm still stating my innocence. The investigators say they have now joined the dots, and the picture they've come up with, they are sure, is real. They say the guys, possibly three guys, heard someone talking about the takings that evening, but they mistakenly heard 15,000, not 15. Some reports we found said 2,000 was taken and some said 3,000, so we can't be sure just how much was stolen. Investigators think the robbery just went wrong, and for some reason they abducted the five people. Why they murdered them all, they just don't know. They admit that the crime cannot be said to be solved until that third person is arrested. The DNA evidence found on Hugh's body does not match Hartsfield, Pinkerton, or Mankins, or anyone else in the DNA database. The guy we mentioned at the start, former Detective Pirtle, said, I think about it every day, and I lie awake some nights with an online mind. It's been a big part of my life, and though I'm retired now, I still want the third person. Hartsfield fought his conviction and in 2010 a court upheld it, saying the evidence against him was solid. He still claims his innocence today, saying the real killer is still out there. This episode is brought to you by Dashlane. Try Dashlane Premium free for 30 days at investigation. According to For This, doing the before it got that abbreviation, it was as dangerous anarchists and regulating investigation, or BOI, secure. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, according to its own website, was started in 1908. But at that point, it was called the Bureau of Investigation, or BOI. There have been interstate crime-fighting organizations before this, doing things like looking for what was perceived as dangerous anarchists and regulating state-to-state -state commerce. But 1908 is generally said to be the beginning of the FBI. Before it got that abbreviation, it was also called the United States Bureau of Investigation, and later, the Division of Investigation. The U.S. was growing in size, and population and crime was growing with it. As the FBI website states, inventions like the telephone, the telegraph, and the railroad had seemed to shrink its vast distances even as the country had spread west. After years of industrializing, America was wealthier than ever, too, and a new world power on the block. But what that meant was that criminals could be more sophisticated, they could get organized, and while this was happening, official corruption was rife. This was the dawn of hyper-criminality in the U.S., and regular police forces were either ill-equipped or even on the payroll of criminals. Something had to change, and a man called J. Edgar Hoover was made director of the FBI in 1924. He'd stay in that position for a long time, and this controversial figure wasn't always very ethical. We'll get around to ethics, or lack there of soon. Hoover was put in charge of creating the Scientific Crime Detection Laboratory, the FBI lab, in 1932. He would begin a war on crime, and on his hands by the end of his tenure in 1972 was a lot of blood. This wasn't just the blood of machine gun-toting gangsters, but people who were sometimes called radicals. The FBI no doubt had a job to do, but looking back, no one, even the FBI, disagrees that its modus operandi was often quite oppressive. And so, we might first talk about something called the Palmer Raids. These were conducted from November 1919 to January 1920, during what was called the Red Scare. A 
America didn't want any damned commies tainting its land of free people, and President Woodrow Wilson at the time told these new federal cops that leftists, anarchists, communists, perhaps even anyone with a radicalized view that didn't fit with the capitalist ethos should be captured and thrown out of the country. The problem was, you could say this operation didn't always embrace human rights. Often, anyone who just didn't look right was arrested and people's houses were searched without warrants. That's why some historians write that the operation was a series of violent and abusive law enforcement raids. Not only were the raids a breach of rights in some cases, but the deportations that followed were sometimes really not warranted. Let's make this super fast and easy everything bagel puff pastry tart, which is the perfect last minute offering for holiday guests or parties with the warranted. Government officials had been attacked and bombs had been sent by mail while people were rioting over what they deemed unfair pay. But the ensuing crackdown we might say today was a little OTT. Take, for example, when around 200 Russian immigrants were studying at something called the Russian People's House in New York City. Cops went in and reportedly just started beating folks with billy clubs. It said one algebra class was interrupted and the teacher was beaten in front of students. Some of those students were arrested and had their money taken from them by the police. In fact, across the country, thousands of people were detained on suspicion for months on end, and they weren't allowed lawyers. In one case, a man called Gaspar Canone was arrested without being charged. He then wouldn't admit to being a communist, so the cops just forged his signature saying he was, and then he was deported. When it was done and dusted, thousands of people across the U.S. had been tortured, beaten, held for no reason, deported, even starved in one case of a thousand detainees, and many, most in fact, were innocent. The whole thing was a disgrace, but it took time for the government to admit the full extent of the damage done. A positive thing that came out of it was these raids resulted in the formation of the American Civil Liberties Union. Every cloud has a silver lining, but try telling that to those who suffer the most. So those were the early days when the FBI used extrajudicial powers to cause pain and embrace injustice. But the threat of a communist uprising stayed with America and many others would unnecessarily be hurt. What you might not know is that the FBI had lots of informants who would tell them if they suspected anyone they knew was a communist. One of those was the actor Ronald Reagan, a man who would become president. Before that, the FBI believed that many communist sympathizers were running wild in Hollywood and preaching to the uninitiated. Who better to have on the inside than a famous actor, and it was Reagan, codenamed T-10, that ratted on his fellow Hollywood acquaintances. It said Reagan and his actress wife Jane Wyman gave a list of names of people working in Hollywood who they thought were a bit on the red side. Reagan was on board as far back as 1941, a long time before he filled the White House big seat. No one knew about this for a long time, of course, and when it was discovered, the FBI said his role was minor. Records show that Reagan even added one man to the list he had just got into a drunken debate with over politics. You'll find information on T-10 in a document called Communist Infiltration of the Motion Picture Industry. Now, as you know, the FBI have had all kinds of informants, and many of them were criminals and killers. They had violent Italian mob boss Frank Cava, as well as a long list of other Italian-American mafia figures. They had Whitey Bulger, the Irish-American gangster, as well as many other gangsters all over the country. These assets were needed, and as you know, occasionally the FBI would have to turn a blind eye to some hardcore criminality. 
but the case of one asset sticks out. This was the case of the African-American man called Elmer Pratt. Pratt served twice in Vietnam, but on his return rose up the ranks of the political organization called the Black Panthers. The FBI didn't much like the Panthers, and they wrote in one document that their intention was to neutralize Pratt, as he had become the organization's Minister of Defense. So they neutralized him, but to do that, they set him up for a murder he didn't commit. The FBI made sure information was withheld from the jury and failed to say that the person who had identified Pratt had earlier said it was someone else. That person was told to make a second guess. He was sentenced to life and served 27 years, spending eight of those in solitary. It was then later discovered that the trial was a charade of justice, and one man who had said Pratt had discussed the murder with him was actually an FBI informant. The man was a major factor in him being committed. Pratt was released and given four and a half million dollars in compensation. You might also not know that in order to keep its assets, the FBI had or has to allow a lot of crimes to take place. According to one document the agency released, in 2011 alone, it allowed 5,658 crimes to happen. On average, 15 a day. Or did you know that you don't have to be arrested for the FBI to have your fingerprints? If you've ever had your prints scanned for anything, they might end up with millions of other fingerprints on the Integrated Automated Fingerprint Identification System in Clarksburg, West Virginia. We should also tell you that if you've ever wanted a genealogical DNA check and have ordered one, the FBI might be able to get their hands on that. This is how the Golden State Killer was caught. He might have found out he was part Native American with a bit of sub-Saharan African ancestry, but the FBI found out who their serial killer was. Another thing the FBI liked to do was smear people, and they did it with a vengeance. We might take the case of young actress Jean Seberg. The FBI wasn't fond of her because she was outspoken about civil rights and she had donated cash to a number of supportive organizations. Records show that the agency had a plan to ruin her life. One document reads, Bureau permission is requested to publicize the pregnancy of Jean Seberg. It's felt that the possible publication of Seberg's plight could cause her embarrassment and serve to cheapen her image with the general public. It said the stress from the FBI and the publications working with it led to premature labor and her baby living only two days. Still, they kept her phone tapped and honored her with round-the-clock surveillance. She then started finding it hard to land roles in movies. The outcome was suicide, and her ex-husband said the FBI drove her to it. You can find a similar case in someone called Billie Holiday, an FBI public enemy because she sang jazz that defended blacks against cruelty. She was also known to ingest illegal substances, and at the time, jazz and getting high was seen as corrupting the youth. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which is separate from but still linked to the FBI, started a smear campaign and again oppressive surveillance. It's written they did this for years, and then it said they very likely planted drugs on her. As many articles point out, they hunted her and they broke her. She died age 44 from liver cancer. And as you can see, we've installed high-def cameras to spot any threats. Our agents review live footage to eliminate the possibility of any false alarms. He's very good. Get an unlimited phone plan starting at $80 per month for your family on Google Fi Wireless. I like Enjoy it. It's fine. The prices blow my mind. But before that, this is what one person sent to investigate her said. I'm going to do her up so goddamn bad she's going to remember as long as she lives. She also wrote this not long before she died. The hounding and the pressure drove me to think of trying the final solution, death. 
Just so you know, another famous singer the FBI had under surveillance was former Beatles renegade John Lennon. The agency didn't much like his give peace a chance stance. Those darned hippie English radicals were not welcome in the US, but a member of the public finally rubbed out Lennon's existence. The FBI used quite a lot of women, and perhaps one of the most famous of those was a lady that would become known as the woman in red. This was a gal called Anna Kupanyash, who'd gone to the US from Romania in 1909, except she didn't find opportunity there in the best of ways, and ended up selling her body on the streets and in houses of ill repute. The FBI realized she worked in a place where the outlaw John Dillinger liked to go. Kupanyash was arrested for being an alien of low moral character, but told she wouldn't be deported if she helped them catch a guy called John, and she was promised the $10,000 reward, or about $200,000 today. She said she would wear red and go to the movies with Dillinger, and that she did. The outcome was a dead Dillinger, and her only getting half of the reward money. She was also deported soon after. Some say that her deportation was part of a cover-up as the FBI didn't actually kill him that night. A high-ranking member of a violent Australian biker gang has his door kicked in by police. Across the world in Germany, a group of contract killers has gotten a police ambush. From triad members in China to the Sinaloa cartel members in the U.S., some of the world's worst criminals are being dragged away in handcuffs, all because of a messaging app. This was the sting of all stings, or as the FBI said, it was unprecedented in the world of crime. Some 800 people belonging to the highest echelons of global organized crime, spanning 18 different nations, found themselves in handcuffs. At the time of the writing, this is likely just the start of bigger things to come. The FBI, along with cops all over Europe and the Australian police, had been tracking the goings-on of 300 organized crime groups in 90 countries, not to mention being privy to what they called high-level public corruption. But before we go any further, let's look at how this started. As you know, if you want to move tons of drugs and weapons around the world, you need a kind of social network. But talking about shipping millions of dollars worth of cocaine to Europe via countries in Africa on Facebook or WhatsApp wouldn't really work. That's why criminals use specially made encrypted apps. In the past, this has worked to some extent. Occasionally, law enforcement finds out about these private networks. Take, for instance, the Canadian company Phantom Secure. It supplied phones that have been modified to provide the utmost security. The company didn't ask who its customers were, or at least that's what it said when the cops bashed down the front doors. It was discovered that one of those customers was the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico, among many other criminal syndicates around the world. The CEO of the company, Vincent Ramos, was arrested but refused to give police a backdoor into the encrypted network. This didn't deter the cops, who later got hold of one of the developers. Police had an idea, thinking, now there's a drought of such secure networks in the world. Why don't we get this developer on our side? You see, he was already working on the next totally secure network for another company. That network was called Anon. Along with the Australian Federal Police, the FBI came up with a plan. According to reports, the two agencies came up with the idea while drinking a few beers with each other. They said, why not secretly distribute this developer's new technology and track it? They paid him $120,000 and he didn't have to go to prison, or at least he got reduced time. His name, of course, remains a mystery. Otherwise, he'd have some of the world's most dangerous people on his back. Now that they had the technology, they just had to get criminal organizations to use the phones. The phones were pretty much useless, except for the fact that they had on them a calculator app. This was actually an encrypted messaging service in disguise. Once the user plugged in a code to the calculator, they could send messages and photos knowing, or at least thinking, that law enforcement would never see them. And boy, as you'll see, they pretty much sent everything.
thing through these phones. This operation was called Operation Trojan Shield, officially starting in 2018. But of course, the police wanted to give the criminals enough time to really put themselves in it. They also needed what they called criminal influencers to spread the word that a new network was out and it was safe. One of them was an Australian drug kingpin named Hakan Ayik. He's now a marked man because he was one of the people that vouched for the phones after he'd been duped into taking some by undercover agents. He's now apparently living the life of luxury somewhere in Turkey, although police have said he is best off handing himself in to us, since a lot of people will likely want him dead. In order to buy one of those phones, you had to know someone in the game and then pay the syndicate that was supplying them. Things just snowballed from there. The more high-profile criminals that used them, the more trusted the phone seemed. And by the time 2019 rolled around, used all over the world by people belonging to Mexican cartel. Various European mafias and power. Right. Yeah, Prices blew my mind. Powerful Asian crime syndicates. What the users We're listening to 50 insane declassified FBI secrets you didn't know and more FBI facts and stories. Users the phones didn't know is that law enforcement had the master key to the encryption. So for years, investigators read messages that discussed some of the most serious crimes on the planet. We're talking about the trafficking of explosives and countless weapons, about the trafficking of tons and tons of narcotics, and also about who was in the firing line to get whacked. At first, only 50 phones were distributed in Australia, but soon they started selling like hotcakes. When the sting happened, almost 12,000 phones were being used by 300 transnational criminal organizations in 90 countries. 27 million messages had been intercepted, comprising 45 languages. This is what the Australian Federal Police Commissioner said about what they were reading on a regular basis. We've been in the back pockets of organized crime. All they talk about is drugs, violence, hits on each other, innocent people who are going to be murdered, and a whole range of things. To give you some examples, at one point someone sent in a photograph. In it was hundreds of tons of cocaine that were concealed in shipments of fruit. It seems this shipment wasn't taken by the authorities. Another photo showed hundreds of kilos of cocaine nicely packaged with a Batman label. One of the many messages read, There is two kilos put aside, French diplomatic sealed envelopes out of Bogota. The message then explained that the Colombians could send two kilograms a week, every week, and they wanted 50% of the profits. Another example conversation was between the names Real G and Iron Man. The former said, Southside asked what prices are in Hong Kong per piece. Piece meant kilogram. These kinds of messages led to drug confiscations, such as the 613 kilos of cocaine that was on its way from Ecuador to Belgium, hidden in cans of tuna. When the tuna company was busted, another 1,523 kilos of cocaine was found, also headed to Belgium. In fact, four tons of cocaine was intercepted. After the arrests were made, the confiscations included eight tons of cocaine, 22 tons of cannabis and resin, two tons of amphetamine and methamphetamine, as well as six tons of chemicals used to make drugs. On top of that, police seized 250 firearms, 55 luxury vehicles, an unreported amount of cryptocurrency, and almost $200 million in cash. The users of the phone were so sure that their privacy was covered that they didn't really try very hard to use any kind of code. 
Police even discovered how criminals did dry runs, which were basically sending containers without narcotics in them just to see how fast things happened if there were problems with customs. Knowing that cops had so many organized crime figures in their hands and they were preventing untold amounts of illegal drugs from getting to their destinations, you might wonder why they decided in 2021 to swoop down and arrest all the names they had. This was the FBI's explanation. This was an ideal time to take it down. We decided, based on the amount of crime that was occurring, the threats to life, it was time to get these criminals off the street. The agency said that during the years of the operation had been going on, police in various countries had managed to mitigate threats to life, meaning they somehow prevented the murders from happening. At the time of the arrests, 10 people in Sweden were apparently on their kill list. 155 people were arrested in that country, while 60 people in Germany and 49 people in Belgium were also arrested. 200 folks in Australia got that early morning call from the cops too. Spain and Serbia also saw lots of arrests, but as you know, the number of people who used the app was huge. Even though this is a massive bust, it won't put too large a dent in the distribution of drugs around the world. The Anon app was said to be used by a small number of organized crime members, especially when you consider how many there actually are. Australian police said there may be many more similar technologies out there they just don't yet know about. Or maybe they don't know about them. Charles Albright was a middle-aged man, well-educated, friendly, and successful. At 57 years old, he became the terror known as the Eyeball Killer. Albright was born in 1933 and adopted at three weeks old. Although Albright himself would never know the truth, he was told that his mother was a very talented law student with a bright future ever, until she secretly married another student and got pregnant. Her wealthy father demanded she annul the marriage and give up the baby for adoption, or else he would cut her off from the family. His adopted mother, Dell, was an extremely doting and overprotective mother. Despite her obvious love for Albright, she had a dark side to her loving nature. She constantly would change his clothes up to three times a day to keep him clean, and terrified that he'd catch polio by touching things he shouldn't, she took him to a hospital and forced him to look at all the people in iron lungs. Matter of fact, it's a shame we can't lock modern anti-vaxxers in a polio ward and make them stare at children in iron lungs. Dell's punishments can be a bit extreme as well. Once she made him sit in a dark room as punishment for chewing on her tape measure, and when he refused to nap, she'd physically tie him to his bed. While the punishments never turned into full-blown abuse, they definitely flirted with it. Dell took extra caution to teach Albright good manners and to be polite, a trait he would carry his entire life. She also made sure that he was respectful of women, especially trying to instill in Albright a politeness and reference to sex, as she compared his father's constant desire for sex as greedy and disrespectful. As you Hey, you told your date you speak Spanish? Yeah, I have like 16 badges in my free app. I'm an expert. You know Pablo teaches you how to have actual conversations, right? Hola, ah, me gusta tu abrigo. Esta canción pertenece a mi hermano. ¿Tienes hermanos? Tengo dos mil papas, todas sin trabajo. ¿Pedimos algo? Quiero un miércoles en la noche, por favor. ¿Tú? Quiero la cuenta. Tengo una luna en mi casa. Random phrases are in conversations. Try Babel. They teach you everything you need to have real conversations in a new language. Want to have real world conversations? Start speaking a new language with Babel. Switch to the Google Fi Wireless Flexible plan and only pay for the data you use. You get four lines with unlimited calls and texts for $65 a month. Then it's just $10 per gig for data. You'll get high-speed hotspot tethering, and you can use your data on tablets with data-only SIM cards at no extra cost. Switch to Google Fi Wireless today. As he grew older, she chaperoned him on every date he went. 
and even phoned his date's parents to reassure them that Albright would be on his best behavior. Dell also placed a strong emphasis on Albright's education, forcing him to practice the piano for 30 minutes a day before the school bus showed up. She also took it upon herself to teach him everything she could about math, reading, and writing, to the point that he was actually bumped up two whole grades in elementary school. All this type of pressure so early in life would take decades to manifest. Another thing Dell taught young Albright, however, was the act of taxidermy. Via mail-order course, she helped him find dead animals to practice on and taught him how to use a knife to cut a skull open, a spoon to scoop out the brains, and forceps to pluck out the eyes. Albright would remember these lessons well late into his 50s, especially the eyes part. Albright, however, started developing troubling behavior early in his teens. At 13, he had already been arrested for petty theft and aggravated assault. He had developed a penchant for low-heeled criminality, seemingly in an act of rebellion against his overprotective mother. Even back then, though, someone knew the trouble that was brewing in that young man's head. As his probation officer, who would later become a psychologist, remarked, he could divorce reality sufficiently from his value system so that he could tell you something false and at the same time actually believe he was telling you the truth. Upon leaving home, Albright was engaging in more serious criminality, and in his first year of college, he was arrested for being part of a burglary ring that had broken into three stores. His overprotective and ever-doting mother begged the court to let her act as his lawyer, and after he was sentenced, begged to let her do the time in his stead. The judge, however, would decline the offer, and Albright would spend his 18th birthday in jail. Out of jail and determined to make a new start for himself, Albright would excel in college, but remained the class clown the entire time. One particular prank, however, would have chilling implications many years later. A friend of his broke up with his girlfriend, known to have very pretty eyes. Albright found all the photos of her his friend had tossed in the trash and cut out the eyeballs. He replaced the eyeballs in the photo of his friend's new girlfriend with the old girlfriend's and then plastered the cutout eyeball. 50 insane classified documents you didn't know about. I like it. It's mine. Every single day in today. Charles Albright was a middle-aged man, well-educated, friendly, and successful. At 57 years old, he became the terror known as the Eyeball Killer. <laughs> Albright was born in 1933 and adopted at three weeks old. Though Albright himself would never know the truth, he was told that his mother was a very talented law student with a bright future ahead of her, until she secretly married another student and got pregnant. Her wealthy father demanded she annul the marriage and give up the baby for adoption, or else he would cut her off from the family. His adopted mother, Dell, was an extremely doting and overprotective mother. Despite her obvious love for Albright, she had a dark side to her loving nature. She constantly would change his clothes up to three times a day to keep him clean, and terrified that he'd catch polio by touching things he shouldn't, she took him to a hospital and forced him to look at all the people in iron lungs. Matter of fact, it's a shame we can't lock modern anti-vaxxers in a polio ward and make them stare at children in iron lungs. Dell's punishments could be a bit extreme as well. Once she made him sit in a dark room as punishment for chewing on her tape measure, and when he refused to nap, she'd physically tie him to his bed. While the punishments never turned into full-blown abuse, they definitely flirted with it. Dell took extra caution to teach Albright good manners and to be polite, a trait he would carry his entire life. 
She also made sure that he was respectful of women, especially trying to instill in Albright a politeness in reference to sex, as she compared his father's constant desire for sex as greedy and disrespectful. As he grew older, she chaperoned him on every date he went, and even phoned his date's parents to reassure them that Albright would be on his best behavior. Dell also placed a strong emphasis on Albright's education, forcing him to practice the piano for 30 minutes a day before the school bus showed up. She also took it upon herself to teach him everything she could about math, reading, and writing, to the point that he was actually bumped up two whole grades in elementary school. All this type of pressure so early in life would take decades to manifest. Another thing Dell taught young Albright, however, was the act of taxidermy. Via mail-order course, she helped him find dead animals to practice on and taught him how to use a knife to cut a skull open, a spoon to scoop out the brains, and forceps to pluck out the eyes. Albright would remember these lessons well late into his 50s, especially the eyes part. Albright, however, started developing troubling behavior early in his teens. At 13, he had already been arrested for petty theft and aggravated assault. He had developed a penchant for low-heeled criminality. Fiberglass models? Durable composites? I like it. Polymers? Thermoplastics? Even a classic wax model? Finality, seemingly in an act of rebellion against his overprotective mother. Even back then, though, someone knew the trouble that was brewing in that young man's head. As his probation officer, who would later become a psychologist, remarked, he could divorce reality sufficiently from his value system so that he could tell you something false and at the same time actually believe he was telling you the truth. Upon leaving home, Albright was engaging in more serious criminality, and in his first year of college, he was arrested for being part of a burglary ring that had broken into three stores. His overprotective and ever-doting mother begged the court to let her act as his lawyer, and after he was sentenced, begged to let her do the time in his stead. The judge, however, would decline the offer, and Albright would spend his 18th birthday in jail. Out of jail and determined to make a new start for himself, Albright would excel in college, but remained the class clown the entire time. One particular prank, however, would have chilling implications many years later. A friend of his broke up with his girlfriend, known to have very pretty eyes. Albright found all the photos of her his friend had tossed in the trash and cut out the eyeballs. He replaced the eyeballs in the photo of his friend's new girlfriend with the old girlfriend's and then plastered the cutout eyeballs in various places around the frat house. Everyone thought it was hilarious. Nobody could see the warning portent of the twisted monster inside. Albright would flirt with the idea of going to medical school, but did terrible on his entrance exams. Instead, he married his college girlfriend and got a job in Arkansas as a high school teacher. There was only one problem. Albright had lied about his qualifications and even forged them. The scam had involved Albright gaining access to official school district records and altering them, and was eventually discovered when the school he claimed to have graduated from realized he was lying. He was, however, very well liked by the students and the staff, so in order to save themselves and him public embarrassment, the school district quietly dismissed him. Instead, Albright pleaded guilty to fraud and received a single year's probation. Albright and his wife moved and started over. She got a job as a teacher, and Albright went on the never-ending series of random gigs. He worked as a designer for an airplane manufacturer, as an illustrator for a patent company, a carpenter, and even made his own baseball bats. Albright even got his beautician's license and got a job as a hairstylist at a salon. It was there that he would convince a friend to pay him $250 to draw his wife's portrait, after claiming he was a distinguished artist. For weeks, Albright avoided turning in his finished work, always commenting that he was almost done, but there was one specific detail that needed all his attention. 
Tired of the excuses, the friend eventually went to Albright's house and discovered the painting. It indeed was beautifully done, almost lifelike in its realism. But there was one thing missing. Right there on his wife's face were two white voids where the eyes should be. Albright's first victim would be found in December of 1990. Mary Pratt, a well-known prostitute in South Dallas, was found naked except for a t-shirt and a bra. Her face and chest was badly bruised as Albright had beaten her before shooting her in the head. Police figured it was a John that had turned bad. It wasn't unusual for prostitutes in the area to be beaten by their clients or pimps. However, Mary had been well-liked and known in the neighborhood. With no witnesses, no murder weapon, and no clues, though, the police had nothing but a cold trail on their hands. About the only clue to the killer's identity would be when Mary's body was autopsied. Albright had shut Mary's eyes after leaving her, and as the coroner opened Mary's eyelids, she was horrified to discover the eyes were missing. It wasn't a hack job, either. Albright had expertly and very deftly cut out each eyeball so as to not cause damage to the surrounding tissue. This earned Albright the distinction of having his case shot up to the FBI, who immediately placed him in a national database, identified only by his unusual and grotesque predilection for cutting out eyeballs. Two months later, Albright struck again. His second victim, Susan Peterson, was discovered on the same road where Mary Pratt's body had been dumped. She too had been found nearly naked, and she too was a well-known local prostitute. Peterson had too been beaten and then shot in the head, chest, and stomach. When the coroner performed his customary autopsy, he too was shocked to discover the missing eyeballs. Once more, the eyes had been taken with extreme care, leaving no damage to the surrounding tissues at all. The police were fearful of drawing attention to the case, as it would put pressure on the killer to change his killing grounds and ruin the police's chance of catching him. However, with no information to go on, it was decided that it was best to warn the community and open up a tip line. The missing eyes, however, were kept secret until finally leaking to the press. For now, all the cops had to go on was that they were dealing with a man with great surgical skill and that he was well-known client to the women he had murdered, judging by the ease of his executions. They set up sting operations with undercover agents and noted the plates of every car used by local Johns, then ran them against the national database of criminals with unusual records. It all amounted to nothing, and Albright remained out of the police's radar for now. On March 19th, the body of Shirley Williams was discovered a half block away from a local elementary school. Williams, too, had been a well-known prostitute, but she was working in a completely different area. Albright had felt the police heat and changed hunting grounds, exactly as the police feared he would. It had been children who found Williams' naked body, crumpled up against a street curb. She was found with facial bruises and a broken nose, with the cause of death being a gunshot wound through the top and back of the head. This time, however, Albright had been in a rush. He had left behind the broken tip of an X-Acto knife, which he was using to perform surgeries. When the news of the third killing went public, prostitutes in the local area fled to other places. Some left the city entirely. Brenda White, a longtime veteran of the streets, however, refused to leave. One night, Albright pulled up to her in a white station wagon, and she climbed in. She told him to drive to a local motel, but he refused, saying instead he had a private spot elsewhere. Alarm bells began to ring in White's mind, as she never allowed new jumps. One simple but brilliant trick to heat your home in 90 seconds and save thousands of dollars on your heating bill this winter. This genius way to heat any room for almost... Johns to take her anywhere but the local motel. She insisted Albright let her out of his car, and he became furious. The quick-thinking White, however, sprayed Albright in the face with mace and rushed from the vehicle, leaving Albright howling in pain and screaming that he would kill all the hookers. Retelling her story to two detectives, warning her to stay off the streets, it got the detectives to think about the other stories prostitutes had been saying. 
One was that of another prostitute known for making up stories, Veronica Rodriguez. She too had said that she'd been attacked by a man matching the description provided by Brenda White. Further, she claimed that the truck driver, Axton Schindler, had actually saved her from the attack. Suspicious police dug into Axton Schindler's background. They discovered that his property was owned by Fred Albright, the now-deceased father. They also discovered, however, that Fred Albright owned a house in the vicinity of where the first two killings had taken place. The name Albright stuck in the officer's head, though, until one of them recalled a strange tip he'd received over the phone. A woman who refused to identify herself had called in and said that she was friends with Mary Pratt, who had introduced her to a new boyfriend of hers. The boyfriend was very nice and polite, but Pratt told her that he had a fascination with eyes and that she had found a box of X-Acto blades in his attic. The story had remained completely forgotten until Deputy Walter Cook happened to remember it while going over the case. Albright's photo was shown to his victims, with one immediately identifying him, and the other shaking in fear as she got to his photo, taking days to gather the courage to identify him to police. At 2.30 in the morning on March 22nd, a SWAT unit smashed into Charles Albright's home. His flabbergasted wife stumbled on a bed in her nightrobe, screaming in terror as the police dragged the defeated and silent Albright away in handcuffs. At the trial, the evidence was largely circumstantial. Albright had taken great pains to avoid leaving any clues behind. In the end, the jury found Albright guilty only of Shirley Williams' murder. However, they recommended and received a life sentence. Today, Albright remains in prison with no possibility of parole. But when asked about the missing eyeballs, he remained steadfast that he never once cut out their eyeballs. Instead, he insists the police did that themselves in order to hype up the case. The X-Files, one of TV's most popular science fiction series with a recent reboot, follows the adventures of agents Mulder and Scully as they unravel a plot for global domination by aliens with the US government's help. Well, help might be too strong of a word. In reality, the US government realizes that it's completely powerless to stop the aliens' plans, and instead attempts to go along with them in order to secure a better place for itself in the new alien-friendly world order. While also secretly trying to undermine said alien plans, it's a cloak-and-dagger show that explores the very fringes of real science and has no shortage of monsters. Yet, you may be surprised to learn that the real-life FBI and CIA also have their very own, very real X-Files. The Flying Saucer Swindler Silas M. Newton made a small fortune for himself in the first half of the 20th century, thanks to his career in oil and natural gas. One of the hardest, most expensive parts of the oil business, however, is the exploration phase, with companies spending tens of millions of dollars just to find a suitable oil field to drill into. In the 1950s, though, Mr. Newton came up with a brilliant answer, and it might have been based on flying saucer technology. In 1950, the world was on fire with news of flying saucers. Just three years earlier, a mysterious crash in Roswell, New Mexico, led to military officials making the shocking claim that a flying saucer from another world had been recovered. Just days later, though, the military reversed its statement, claiming no such saucer had crashed, and instead a weather balloon had been recovered. The world wasn't buying it. And soon, news of UFOs and alien bodies being recovered by the U.S. government were all the rage. Then, a bombshell announcement hit newspapers all across the U.S. Scientists says flying saucer pilots will land within a year. Little men in saucer do soon to explore Earth, Savant says. Geophysicist sees saucers landing soon, thinks pilots from other planet about ready to visit Earth. The story spread like wildfire, fueled along with the credibility of the man behind the claims, a professional scientist. Only there was one problem. The scientist, or geophysicist, as some papers called him, was none other than oil man Silas M. Newton. 
who definitely had no formal scientific training. Instead, given his knowledge of the oil business, it seems that one of the newspapers gave Mr. Newton an honorary degree, and the rest sort of ran with it. As the story evolved, it was claimed that the predictions came from a real scientist named Dr. G, whom Newton was friends with. The scientist also claims that the saucers flew using magnetic propulsion, utilizing the Earth's magnetic field to zoom around. Newton soon took things a step further and claimed that the same technology flying saucers were using, he had learned to harness in a special device that could be used to detect oil. Unfortunately for Mr. Newton, the story had reached the desk of one J. Edgar Hoover, who, when he wasn't busy secretly cross-dressing or trying to dismantle the civil rights movement, occasionally took the time to do his job and investigate crime. Newton and his device were exposed as a hoax by the FBI, and Newton would end up facing prosecution for his elaborate flying saucer scam. Or, at least that's the official story. After all, if Newton really had discovered world-changing tech based on flying saucers, surely the powers that be wouldn't want him to make it available on the free market. Our next X-File comes from the CIA, and could truly have been out of this world. The Soviet UFO Incident. July 1952, and the CIA station in West Germany receives a stunning report. A local may have just inadvertently stumbled upon a secret Soviet craft in the woods on the American-controlled West German countryside. The man is brought in for questioning as agents immediately move out to verify his story. The man is a 46-year-old German from East Germany and a former mayor, Oskar Linke. Linke has only just recently escaped from East Germany along with his wife and six children, and on the day in question, is on his way home. Do we have room in the budget? We've got extra. Side gig. Permission to spend, I go. I'm in. Way home with his daughter when the tire on his motorcycle blows out. Unable to repair it, he and his daughter walk on foot to the nearest town, when suddenly his daughter points out something strange near the trees about 140 meters away from them. Catching a glimpse of something, Linka tells his daughter to wait and moves closer to get a better look. Once he's about 55 meters away, he spots what appears to be two men dressed in shiny metallic clothing, investigating something on the ground. Curious, Linka approaches the men and gets within 10 meters when he suddenly spots a large object on the other side of a small fence. The object appears to be a craft of some sort, something like a flying frying pan and about 13 to 15 meters in diameter. The top of the object is tapered so as to become a large conical tower. It was like nothing Linka or anyone else on this earth for that matter had ever seen. At that moment, Lincoln's daughter calls out to him, and the men in metallic suits whip around and realize they're being watched. They immediately climb inside the strange craft and disappear inside. The object begins to glow and rise into the air with a loud whistling sound, flames shooting out of the bottom of it as it lifts up and away over the trees. Lincoln was initially terrified that he'd stumbled across this secret Soviet craft, as he recalled in his testimony to CIA agents. He had known of people in East Germany that the Soviets had placed on travel restrictions for accidentally knowing too much. The CIA investigation into the matter revealed that at the exact same time as Linka's sighting, many other people in the area reported seeing a falling star-like object in the sky, with one shepherd noting that he had seen what he thought was a comet moving at a very low altitude over the forests. While this X-File is declassified, what's most telling is that the CIA's official conclusions on the matter are not only the initial report. Whatever the CIA discovered after investigating the story and its conclusions on the origin of this mysterious craft remain to this day unknown. FBI's X-Ray Vision. 
The 50s were apparently a pretty crazy time because our next X-File also comes from the 1950s. In 1957, two individuals from the federal government, whose names remain redacted in declassified papers, attended an event hosted by a Mr. William Foose at the American Legion headquarters in Washington, D.C. Mr. Foose made an extraordinary claim. He could teach the blind to see using extrasensory perception. At the demonstration, Mr. Foose used his own daughter, whom he blindfolded, and wowed the audience as she was able to read from newspapers brought by reporters, the Bible, and various other bits of literature. What's more, Mr. Foose's daughter was able to distinguish color and even move around the room without bumping into objects. After the demonstration was over, the two government agents questioned Mr. Foose privately, who revealed that he could teach the technique to others, that with some work, even greater feats could be accomplished, such as seeing through walls or into envelopes. The agents were so impressed by the event that they recommended the FBI look into Mr. Foose, citing the obvious benefits his abilities could be in counterintelligence and criminal investigation. What followed was a firestorm of federal, military, and even CIA investigation into Mr. Foose and others like him. While the demonstration by Mr. Foose's daughter was believed to be genuine, and no trickery could be determined by the agents who witnessed it, another demonstration by Mr. Foose's son, where he attempted to determine what specific card a face-down playing card was, saw only a 50% success rate, which was only a little bit better than when he attempted the same feat without a blindfold on. Officially, while not disproving Mr. Foose's abilities, the declassified FBI files show that they recommended the government not pursue Mr. Foose as a national security asset. However, what may be the most revealing about these files is one single line in one of the reports which states, The actuality of extrasensory perception has long been recognized, though not to the degree of perfection claimed by Mr. Foose. Perhaps Mr. Foose was officially discredited so that officially he could work for the U.S. government as an extrasensory spy, a phenomenon the FBI seemed to acknowledge was possible. Our next X-File comes from the CIA, which seems to reach some startling conclusions about what's really flying around in our skies. Flying Saucer Showdown in the Congo In the early 1950s, the threat of atomic war was very real, and both the U.S. and the Soviet Union took security of its precious uranium mines extremely seriously. That's why when two UFOs appeared over a uranium mine in a Belgian Congo, the CIA immediately leapt into action. For the start of its nuclear program, the U.S. sourced most of its uranium from mines in Belgian-controlled Congo, naturally leading to a CIA presence in the region. The threat of espionage or sabotage by Soviet agents was all too real, though the CIA desk in the Congo could have never expected a threat from outer space. On an unspecified day in 1952, two flying disks made an appearance over uranium mines over the southern Congo in the Elizabethville district. The disks were witnessed by dozens of observers on the ground and were seen to glide across the sky in elegant curves and change positions so frequently that from below they were seen as plates, ovals, and sometimes just lines as they turned edge on to the ground observers. Suddenly, before the shocked onlookers, the disks came to a complete stop and a hissing and buzzing sound was heard as the disks flew off in a zigzag flight toward the northeast. A Belgian military officer, identified as Commander Pierre, hopped onto a fighter plane and set off in immediate pursuit, taking off from a nearby airfield. He managed to come within 120 meters of one of the disks, estimating that the saucer had a diameter of 12 to 15 meters and was shaped like a discus. It had an inner core which seems to remain completely still while the outer part of the craft spun at incredible speed, being completely veiled in flame. Both crafts seemed to be constructed out of aluminum-like material. The UFOs flew together in an extremely precise manner, though Commander Pierre could not believe that the disks were manned 
as that incredible heat and sudden acceleration and deceleration would have no doubt killed any human occupant. The disks could make changes in elevation as great as 1,000 meters in just a matter of seconds. I like it. Of seconds, they would often shoot down to skim just 20 meters above the tree line. Finally, the discs took off with a loud whistling sound at an estimated speed of 1,500 kilometers per hour, leaving Commander Pierre completely in the dust. Commander Pierre and his report were thoroughly investigated by the CIA, which concluded that Pierre was considered an extremely dependable officer and a well-trained and experienced pilot. While no further conclusions can be gleaned from the declassified document, one line at the end of the report clearly raises a lot of eyebrows. He gave a detailed report to his superiors, which, strangely enough, in many respects agreed with various results of research. Clearly, the CIA was inclined to believe Commander Pierre's statement on the flying saucers and his reported observations, as they seemed to closely match other eyewitness accounts investigated by CIA agents. Who was really flying those discs, though, we may never know, as any further conclusions remain classified. At the height of his powers, Pablo Escobar was raking in $149.5 million every single day. In today's money, at least. That's $55.5 billion a year. As the famous anecdote goes, his cartel was going through $1,000 a week in rubber bands that went around the wads of cash. Escobar owned exquisite mansions, a fleet of luxury cars, and even a personal zoo featuring giraffes and hippos. But to get all those things, like any law-breaking drug trafficker, he had to get his vast amount of mostly American money cleaned. As you'll see today, this is sometimes quite a complex operation and involves a lot of law-abiding friends. Let's stick with the deceased Mr. Escobar before we talk about the present state of money laundering for today's super-rich, technology-savvy criminals. We guess we should first explain a little bit about what money laundering actually is, for those of you unacquainted with the high crime. Basically, if you were a criminal earning millions of bucks from your highly illegal enterprise, you want to spend that money without someone asking questions. This is when money laundering comes in. Even smaller drug dealers these days will have a small front business, say a burger restaurant, so it'll look like they earn cash from a legitimate trade. All you have to do is do things that are inflating the prices so it looks like you've earned a legitimate profit. That's the real basic kind of money laundering. But when you're big, you need someone to wash your dirty cash in a complex system, hence the term laundering. You can't keep all that cash under your bed, and if you want to put it in the bank, you need to make it look as though it was earned through legal enterprise. You first get the money, then you can layer it by doing lots of small global transactions, perhaps buying stocks or by using a shell company. After that, you integrate the money, meaning the money earned has come back to you to buy things with, but now it looks as if you've earned the cash through legal means. Back in the day, the Colombian cartels didn't always use complex schemes. Those were the early days when law enforcement was lax and just about anyone could be bribed. In those days, the cartels would sometimes simply buy gold from Italy. They bought so much that they almost destabilized the price of gold there. The gold would then be smuggled back to Colombia with some bribes on the way, no doubt. Then the cartels would sell the stuff to create legitimate money. Sometimes they simply sold it to Panama, but other times they smelted it and sold it to town mayors in Colombia. Those mayors then sold it to the state, saying that it came from local mines. Many years after Pablo Escobar met his end on a hot tin roof, the Sinaloa cartel would buy gold in the USA. They'd then sell it in the US, where someone would melt it down and sell it for hard cash. In this case, the melting guys in Florida would keep 1% of the earnings, which was still a lot. Sure, it meant falsifying lots of paperwork, but it worked. Well, it did, until it didn't. 
Gold is great for traffickers. In 2020, there were reports that one company based in Dubai was buying large amounts of gold from traffickers, and then that company was selling the gold to large U.S. companies that used the precious substance for certain components and goods. So if you've ever used a product made by Apple, General Motors, or Amazon, and it has gold bits in it, you might have unwittingly helped those cartels. The company in Dubai denied doing it, but the DEA said it transferred tremendous amounts of illicit value through the use of gold as a commodity. The New York Times wrote about a vicious cycle that's been going on for years. The cycle goes drugs, gold, money, drugs, gold, money, and so on. The United States attorney then said that getting the drugs into the U.S. was actually easier than getting the money out. You should know that when a large sum of money appears in a bank account, it can set off alarm bells. There was a guy in the U.K. who made a ton of cash from investing in virtual currencies, and then one day he found out that his account had been closed due to a flag of suspicious activity. He almost had a heart attack. But the bank hadn't taken the money, they gave him a check, and in the end, he just had to go do his banking elsewhere. The tide of drugs and drug money never ends. It might get slightly interrupted, but the drug war is possibly the best example of Sisyphus pushing that ball a rock up a hill for an eternity. That's why drug traffickers have to keep evolving their laundering schemes, just as the man you know as El Chapo did. While El Chapo was in his prime, he used an ingenious method to fly under the radar. A man named Hernan Botero Moreno came up with the idea of depositing less than $10,000 at a time and got the name Papa Smurf, hence the term Smurfing. He'd get what has been described as an army of Smurfs to deposit drug money in banks, but to avoid the bank issuing a suspicious activity report, the amount of cash was always under $10,000. Cute. But even with an army of people, it's not really that effective when you're talking about millions upon millions of dollars. El Chapo had many other tricks up his sleeves, too. He'd do what's called trade-based money laundering, meaning he'd simply buy goods from companies with his drug money and sell the goods in Mexico for pesos. We're talking about a lot of goods. This can mean a company will knowingly take illicit cash, or if they're unaware that they're dealing with extremely dodgy people. What the authorities will be doing meanwhile is looking for companies that have suddenly started selling way more than they did previously. Or perhaps companies that have historically used money transfers, but then suddenly changed to using large sums of cash instead. Let's give you a real example. El Chapo, for a while, was buying large amounts of clothes in L.A.'s fashion district, and some of those sellers were not reporting their transactions. This went on for a while, with El Chapo selling the clothes in Mexico. You want me to play a fake game? This looks kind of cool. Wish me luck. Okay, so we're going to start off and get three, I guess. I'll get that barrel and get a new AR. Nice! It only came undone because U.S. banks started becoming suspicious when they saw the accounts of some of those sellers. But wouldn't you do the same, given the opportunity? A cartel buying your goods in bulk can be a really good way of making money. So while this is a lot easier than you might have thought, the Cali and Medellin cartels used to do something even simpler. They used check cashing stores in New York City to get the money back to Colombia. And while you might think it wasn't that efficient, they sent $800 million back through this scheme before it was exposed. Banks can help too. When the cartel started making ridiculous amounts of money, they started putting it in banks in Miami, which led to alarm sounding after a while. The Federal Reserve Bank in Florida had a $5.5 billion cash surplus when all over the country there was a cash deficit. It turned out the banks involved were taking massive lump sums of cash and asking for very little documentation. They were found out through something called Operation Greenback. But don't go thinking that just because banks had been busted in the past, other banks didn't take huge amounts of cartel cash later. In 2006, a DC-9 jet landed down in Mexico where there was a bunch of soldiers waiting for it. When they checked the contents of the plane, they found around $100 million of cocaine. That was hardly a big deal. What was a big deal, though, was the evidence in the plane that showed the Sinaloa cartel had been laundering billions of bucks through a U.S. bank. That bank was the Wachovia Bank. 
which would later become part of Wells Fargo. No one at the bank ever went to prison for the crime, although forfeiture and a fine in 2010 meant that the bank had to give the authorities a total of $160 million. That wasn't much, actually only 2% of the $12.3 billion the bank made in 2009. It's not as if the bank was friends with the cartels, or at least we don't think that was the case, but as the U.S. media said, it showed a blatant disregard for our banking laws. The money was just too good. Here's what The Guardian had to say about this. More shocking, and more importantly, the bank was sanctioned for failing to apply the proper anti-laundering strictures to the transfer of $378.4 billion, a sum equivalent to one-third of Mexico's gross national product, into dollar accounts from so-called Casas de Cambio, CDCs in Mexico, currency exchange houses with which the bank did business. In this case, an English bloke working at the bank, Martin Woods, had spotted the suspicious accounts. But when he told his superiors something sketchy was happening, he got in trouble. He later took the bank to court and won a settlement for the unfair dismissal. He said of the bank's dealings with cartels, These are the proceeds of murder and misery in Mexico and of drugs sold around the world. But no one goes to jail. And don't go thinking other banks didn't do it. With relatively small penalties and massive profits to make, you'd be a fool not to get involved. That usually just means turning a billion blind eyes. In fact, banks have been called the financial wing of the cartels. They're almost silent partners. In the words of Bob Dylan, steal a little, they throw you in jail. Steal a lot, and they make you a king. Ask the British investment bank HSBC, which not that long ago was down on its knees saying, sorry, sorry, guys, sorry, bad form, old chap. That's because it was doing business with the largest drug cartel in the world, and the bosses, it seemed, had given the accounts the blind eye treatment. It was obvious that it was cartel money, that's for sure. This was Wachovia Part 2, a bank, by the way, that monitored $376 billion of dodgy cartel cash. It's a lot of money going through your bank from people who sometimes do business with chainsaws and a pair of pliers. HSBC let $670 billion of cartel cash go through its systems without being monitored. The cartels even had special boxes made where they could dump huge amounts of cash right at the teller windows at HSBC outlets in Mexico. It ended up paying $1.256 billion in forfeiture, as well as another $665 million. Where exactly all that money goes depends on various factors, but it usually just goes back to law enforcement, we guess, so they can carry on fighting the war on drugs. Sisyphus gets some new shoes, and he needs them. The war on drugs cost the U.S. $51 billion per year and has cost well over $1 trillion over 50 years, although most of that money comes from the taxpayer. Anyway, you can't really beat having banks handle your cash and not ask questions. It's akin to the cops helping you get away with murder. And the best thing is, if you're a banker, you're too big to go to jail. A former federal agent said it really bursts people's bubbles who think money laundering is always super complex. It sometimes isn't. That guy said in an interview, it's so simple, it's so unsophisticated. That is what to me is the most disturbing part of this. These guys are not even trying that hard. Take, for example, of the drug cartel that goes by the name of Los Zetas. They had a scheme in which they bought racing horses and used the profits to launder through the Bank of America. In this case, a U.S. man connected to the gang did the banking. It was small change, though, amounting to only one and a half million. Also, in this case, the bank wasn't to blame, so no fines were handed out. The thing with banks is they can say that they didn't know what was going on but sometimes they really don't. That's why cartels will look for weak spots, meaning banks in some countries that don't have the highest grade mechanisms in place to spot suspicious movements of money. It goes without saying that the cartels are still doing it today. Sometimes they do what rich folks do who make their money legally, that is, store the money offshore where it can't be taxed. Regular companies do this by exploiting loopholes in the law, with royalty, big business, celebrities, and politicians getting in on the act. A modern example of this is in the case of Mexican boss named Rafael Caro Quintero. 
whose incredibly expensive mansion was bought through an offshore account. By using such ghost accounts, the cartels can layer the money through many transactions. Some Chinese businessmen are in on the deal too, due to it being a vast country with massive and intricate industries. The US media reports that China is actually the go-to place these days for cartels, where money laundering is said to be a complex issue. It was reported in one recent case that a large network of Chinese nationals were taking the drug money from the cartels by picking up large sums of it, often in the US. Then laundering was trade-based laundering that we talked about earlier, where the buying of goods is the name of the game. Just make it look like you're buying big from a business in China and that company will do a bit of what's called trade misinvoicing and everyone's a winner. Not long ago, a Chinese national was arrested in the US for doing something called a mirror swap with the cartels. In this case, the broker took the drug money and then transferred the same amount of Chinese currency in their Chinese bank to a Chinese launderer. Money got swapped. And how did the US authorities track Chinese money? Not easily. The Chinese person who was caught in the act was under surveillance. With the FBI hearing tapped telephone calls, the guy saying he was really worried about getting ripped off or even killed. He was handed $3 million over some time, which he had to send to someone else in China. He took a 3% commission. He probably shouldn't have worried about being killed since a good money launderer is a hot property. Some of the stranger ways to launder your cash is something you might have already thought about when you imagined becoming a criminal. What if you simply opened an account with an online gambling platform? That way you could keep the cash there and get it out using a variety of payment methods. You could also take the risk of gambling but only bet on safer kinds of bets such as what people sometimes call sure winners. Criminals have often used casinos in a similar way. Again, it's very basic. You go into a casino, you buy a large number of chips, then you play a bit and cash them in. This has been happening at casinos for years. As you have a receipt from the casino, it looks like you have clean money. Just in 2021, the media reported that a Chinese gang of launderers had been busted for cleaning millions of drug money for the cartels. They did some trade laundering, but they also sent money to a Chinese businessman who'd opened his own casino in Guatemala City. You can be sure having a casino working with you is an excellent way to get rid of your cash. In fact, many of the most recent reports feature Chinese nationals using casinos and also cryptocurrency to help the cartels clean their hard-earned flood money. When you purchase crypto, you do so with an identifying number, but you don't have to give your full name. Even though the blockchain where the transaction is recorded is there for the authorities to see, it's hard for them to track back the cash to a cartel. The criminals could have lots of accounts with different kinds of currencies, and they also use smurfs in the virtual world to handle their money. It's thought that the cartels have used cryptocurrencies to buy certain chemicals needed to make synthetic drugs made by Chinese companies. The word on the street is the cartels have moved around $3 billion through Chinese crypto exchanges, accounting for 50% of the crypto money they have. That analysis was from 2019, but you can be sure that this new way of laundering has taken off a lot more since then. The drug trade likely seems even more enticing than it did in the past, so we very much doubt that Sisyphus is going to retire anytime soon. As things stand, his sentence is still eternity. Scott Lee Kimball, a name you've likely never heard before today. Probably because the FBI doesn't want you to know about this serial killer they paid and protected. Kimball was born in 1966 to an unhappy home. He and his brother were witnesses to their parents' divorce when Kimball's mother came out as a lesbian shortly after his 10th birthday. His father immediately left her and remarried, but the boys went on to live with their mother. Deeply troubled by his home life, Kimball had his first run-in with the police when they were called after he fired a gun out of the window at neighboring homes. Kimball and his brother eventually moved in with their grandmother, but there, a neighbor, Theodore Payton, began bullying both of them. The bullying continued until Kimball's early 20s. Then he was involved in a gun accident that would change his life forever. The bullet glanced off his skull, leaving a distinct scar. 
The accident nonetheless left Kimball in critical condition for several days, but once he recovered, one of his cousins commented that he had changed dramatically. In his own words, he had lost his conscience. The trauma, however, gave Kimball the courage to face his bully, and he, along with several others, reported him to the police. Peyton would be convicted and imprisoned, but according to a former girlfriend, Kimball still felt like he was less of a man due to the bullying he suffered. The trauma had left deep scars, and the emotional and psychological damage would one day manifest itself in horrifying ways. Years later, an imprisoned Peyton was asked how he thought the bullying had shaped Kimball into the killer he would turn into, but Peyton had no comment. Kimball would make a living as a hunting guy. It looks simple, but it is actually advanced medical-grade technology for your brain that can greatly improve many aspects of your life. Let us explain. When we go to rest, the frequency of our brain waves slows down, and when our mind is active, it speeds up. But because of our hectic lifestyle, our internal frequency isn't always in sync with our needs. This is where we come in. Neo Rhythm, a wearable health device that uses electromagnetic waves to safely stimulate a state of mind. He guide and dabbled in numerous nonviolent crimes. In 1988, he scored his first felony for writing bad checks in Montana. Then later that year, he was arrested once more for passing yet another bad check and for breaking and entering in two separate homes and stealing several firearms. Kimball managed to avoid jail time and moved in with his second wife to Spokane, Washington where he could start a new life of crime. Getting into the lumber business, he began to scam timber companies, almost as if he couldn't even help himself. Kimball also stole money from his wife's dentist and the church they attended. In 1997, the couple divorced, and two years later, Kimball kidnapped his wife, though charges were never filed because the two had continued a sexual relationship even after the split. Kimball's laundry list of crimes were finally catching up, and in 2000, he finally landed prison time. After passing three more forged checks, a court revoked his suspended sentence from his 1988 sentencing, landing him in prison for about a year. After his sentence, he was moved to a pre-release prison in Helena, Montana, where he was allowed to work as a cashier at a gas station. Inevitably, Kimball ended up stealing $671 from the gas station, along with a truck. Kimball fled north, going up to Alaska and living under his brother's name. There he met Catherine Curtis, the woman who would become his third wife and who never knew him as anyone but Brett Kimball. However, soon Kimball found himself in need of cash, and he bought himself blank check stock and a computer, with which he could print checks in his brother's name, forging almost $25,000 in bad checks. Eventually, the authorities once more caught up with him, and they threw him in an Anchorage prison. Kimball knew that with all his old warrants surfacing now that his identity had been revealed. He'd need to make himself valuable somehow if he was going to be a free man anytime soon. That's when he turned to the FBI and sold them a story they bought hook, line, and sinker. Kimball might have been a monster, but he was charismatic and had a knack as a confidence man. He warned the FBI that his cellmate was plotting to kill a federal judge, federal prosecutor, and two witnesses. He also told them that he could provide information about the October 2001 assassination of a federal prosecutor in Seattle. Given his nonviolent white-collar crimes, the FBI bought his stories and discarded his warrants, moving him from his prison in Anchorage, Alaska, to FCI Inglewood in Colorado. Six months later, he was released, officially an informant to the FBI. Of course, Kimball had no actual intelligence to provide for the FBI, so he fed them a continuous line of exaggerations and useless information. To this day, not a single arrest or warrant has ever stemmed from Kimball's service as an informant. 
Kibble, however, took right back to his old ways right under the FBI's nose. He began cashing bad checks again, but soon took on the biggest score of his life. It started a legitimate business buying and selling organic beef and took to financing that business with bad checks. Getting greedy would lead to his downfall, though. Impersonating Cleve Armstrong, a local optometrist, Kimball wrote more than $83,000 in bad checks to his own companies. Kimball had gained access to the necessary info thanks to his mother, who ran an insurance company in the same building as Armstrong. Kimball had set up a small office for himself in the basement of the building, right next to a poorly secured closet that kept many of Armstrong's financial records. Breaking in and stealing the necessary info let Kimball impersonate Armstrong over the phone to his bank, making the payments without detection. As the police began to look for Kimball, though, he'd already fled the state. The FBI pulled their protection of Kimball after an internal review found that Kimball had provided no good intelligence to date. The officer who had recruited him and overseen his short career as an informant was immediately reassigned, probably to a listening post in the Arctic Circle somewhere. To this day, though, the FBI refuses to comment on the situation, likely to avoid even more public embarrassment. Kimball's marriage eventually imploded, and he took up with a 25-year-old waitress. She would later remark that while he acted like a gentleman at all times, he was prone to rough sex, bondage, and taking photos of her. Eventually, he pressured her to buy him a rifle, as he was not allowed due to his status as a felon. Upon receiving the rifle, Kimball disappeared once more. With the FBI now issuing a warrant for his arrest and cooperating with local law enforcement across several states, a disturbing picture of Kimball's activities in the last few years began to merge. Sometime toward the end of 2002, Kimball had reached out to Leanne Emery, the girlfriend of an inmate he had served time with, and turned into authorities as the mastermind of an escape plan he had actually engineered himself. As part of the plan, his cellmate had told him to make contact with Emery once he was out of prison, in case he wasn't able to. And Emery was also told to listen to Kimball and do as he said. Kimball contacted Emery and drew her into his scams, the two stealing mail from local post offices to forge checks. On January 16, 2003, Emery told her parents that she was going on a trip to Mexico to go caving. Her parents hoped that this was a sign she was taking some time off and getting a grip on her out-of-control life. Instead, she'd end up losing it. Emery and Kimball went on a road trip, stealing checks worth $15,000. Kimball also made sure that their gas and expenses were paid on Emery's credit card, as well as a laptop and a handgun. Kimball would use that handgun to shoot Emery in the head shortly after, leaving her body in a box canyon in Utah. Kimball would also go on to kill the girlfriend of another cellmate, Jennifer Markham. Markham was a 25-year-old single mother and high school dropout working as a stripper. Kimball had told Markham that he had opened up a chain of coffee shops and had an opening for her in Seattle. In preparation for the move, Markham moved her belongings to Kimball's home. She'd never be seen again. Markham's car was discovered at the Denver airport, though there was no evidence she had ever boarded a flight. On the insistence of her father, the police opened an investigation into Markham's disappearance, and through a contact at the FBI, he was able to get a meeting with an informant who had news on the murder and went by the alias Joe Snitch. The informant said that Jennifer was dead and knew where the body was buried, which made Markham's father believe that this informant had actually killed Markham himself. The FBI didn't believe him until Joe offered to show Markham's mother exactly what happened to her daughter, or a sex escort if she paid for one. At a meeting, Markham's father had managed to write down Joe's license plate number and had a police friend run the plates, revealing that the informant was none other than Kimball himself. Kimball, however, had already struck close to home. In 2003, he had met a single mother, Laura McLeod, and now lived with his new girlfriend and her 19-year-old daughter, Casey Dawn McLeod. One day, Kimball presented a bag of drugs to Casey's mother, claiming to have found them in her room. 
In a confrontation with her mother, Casey grew angry after denying the drugs were hers and left the house. Kimball got Casey a hotel room where she could stay and came by to pick her up and drive her to work. He reassured Casey's mother that she just needed some time to cool off, but then Casey went missing. One day she didn't show up at the hotel room she was sharing with her boyfriend and she had never shown up to work. Kimball claimed to have been on a hunting trip that day and conveniently left on a work trip for a whole week right after Casey went missing. Kimball had already murdered Casey though, burying her remains in a national park. Casey wouldn't be the only family member Kimball would kill though. Soon after Casey's disappearance, Kimball's uncle, Terry, had the good fortune of winning the lottery and promptly retired to Mexico. There was just one problem. The Ohio State Lottery had no record of Terry winning. What was known is that Kimball had immediately begun to sell Terry's items shortly after he went missing. In 2008, Kimball was finally jailed for check fraud and was the prime suspect in at least four disappearances. Authorities grilled him, but Kimball refused to confess to any murders, though he dropped the enigmatic clue which stuck in one of the investigators' minds, asking what if one of the girls had simply disappeared in a national forest, presumably seeking to offer a plausible explanation for Casey's disappearance that didn't involve him. Kimball had inadvertently offered a clue that would bring him down. Investigator Jonathan Grusing happened to remember a receipt that had been sitting in evidence after Kimball's arrest. The receipt placed Kimball at a grocery store very near the Route National Forest on the day after Casey disappeared. Contacting park staff, they confirmed that his skull had been found in the fall of 2007. Subsequent DNA testing proved that it belonged to Casey McLeod. Perhaps the most disturbing of all, though, is the fact that Kimball had taken Casey's mother on their official honeymoon to that same forest just a few days after he had killed and buried her not far from where they made camp. With that discovery, the pressure ramped up on Kimball. He resisted at first, but eventually caved, helping lead investigators to the remains of two of his other victims. A third, however, couldn't be found, but he admitted to the murder. Despite this, Kimball is suspected in the murders of several other individuals, including the attempted murder of his own son, covered up as a serious car accident. His son just happened to have a life insurance policy made out to Kimball himself. Today, Kimball rots in a prison in Florida where he'll never see another day as a free man. The FBI, meanwhile, continues to do its best to sweep under the rug the several years that they unknowingly protected a serial killer as an informant. It's the big day. You're about to become an official member of the Mafia. And once you're in, you don't get out. There's just one thing left to do. Go through your initiation rites. What is it truly to... Ben, why don't you go say hi to the new neighbor? I never know what to say. Have a mood, gummy. They always make you feel more social. They take a sec to kick he take to become a member of the Mafia. The authorities have been trying to find out for a long time. The Mafia is a notoriously secretive crime organization, and many people who stumble onto information they shouldn't have don't live to tell anyone. But they're also a criminal organization with a respect for tradition and for hierarchy, and they take bringing new people into the organization seriously. So whether someone is an actual criminal or an undercover officer hoping to avoid detection, when it comes time for that initiation right, you better pay attention. But nothing stays a secret forever. The rich date back a long time, all the way back to 1877 in Sicily, where it was written about in a local newspaper. Sixteen years later, things were tense between the local mafia, known as the Fratellanza, and the local left-wing youth group. Bernardino Vero, a young activist, joined the mafia's youth movement to gain their protection. He reported on the ritual he underwent, including tests of loyalty and cutting himself with a knife, with the blood that was then dripped onto the drawing of his skull. He soon broke from the mafia and went on to a successful career as a local politician before the mafia killed 
him, having not forgotten his past offenses. Many things have changed since then, but not everything. As the Mafia made their way across the ocean to America and established themselves as a criminal powerhouse, they became more tight-lipped than ever. Sharing details of the ritual with someone outside the mob was considered a grievous offense, with mob boss Joseph Massino saying, once a bullet leaves that gun, you never talk about it. For the irony of that statement, he was saying it from the witness stand after turning on the Mafia and cutting deals with the government. Today, much more is known about the ritual thanks to the number of made men who have flipped, and it all started with the FBI. The year was 1989, and the mystery was about to be blown wide open. It was suburban Boston, and the Patriarcha family was inducting new members. Needless to say, this was by invitation only, and getting rejected at the door would mean harsher consequences than getting tossed out by the bouncer. The FBI couldn't get in, but that didn't mean they weren't prepared. They placed electronic surveillance devices at the house before the big day, and captured the identities of everyone present, along with the details of a ritual that few outside the mafia had ever glimpsed. And there was one big advantage to this. It's not illegal to be inducted into the mafia, and no one was busted for it. The FBI kept tabs on all the new guys, of course, but the biggest reason cracking the initiation right was a coup for the feds was when working with undercover agents. If you're in deep cover with the mafia and it's your time for your initiation right, you better get every step of it right, or you might be headed for a quick retirement with two shots to the back of the head in a swamp. Knowing and even watching the initiation right ahead of time could give future undercover agents the chance to prepare themselves and project the confidence an undercover man needs. In the United States, a few things have changed, but the core stays the same. The Mafia knew that the heat was on, and for a while, the books to become a made man in the Mafia were closed for almost 20 years. While the FBI had information and eventually a first-hand perspective, the first description came from old-school Mafia man-turned-government informant Joe Balaki. Convicted of trafficking and murder, he turned government witness in the 1960s and provided the FBI with the most detailed information on the Mafia yet, including the nitty-gritty of the ceremony, the first step getting chosen. How do you join the Mafia exactly? There isn't an application process, and pushing too hard will probably make the local bosses think you're suspicious. In other words, you don't call them, they'll call you. The best way to get in is to show them you can be trusted. People who run errands for Mafia members offer them a legitimate place to do business or cover for them with the authorities will be on their radar and they may eventually go from an associate to a full-on member. They'll also bring in solo criminals who impress them with their ingenuity, although you don't want to be seen as competition. And once you get in, it's serious business. You'll meet the bosses, and they have to approve you. Once you get the nod, it's common for multiple people to be initiated at one time, in a sort of collective baptism into the world of crime. This is where you become a wise guy, or in the more famous term, a made man. Well, kind of. Getting initiated isn't the end of the story, but it is one of the biggest steps to make the bosses trust you. They want to see loyalty. They want to see confidence, so they're going to put you through the paces and you'd better not flinch, even when there's some pain involved. Jovalaki's description of the ceremony might not be 100% accurate anymore from the 1960s, but the majority has stayed consistent. He sat down at the table and was presented with some wine, along with a gun and a knife. The boss said some words in Italian, and another wise guy picked up Falaki's hand and pricked his finger, dripping the blood onto a piece of paper. The paper usually has an image of a skull or a saint on it. The boss then informed Falaki that he was now part of the family, and he would now live by the gun and the knife and die by them as well. But is this truly what it takes to become a made man? The definition differs, but the practice remains, and becoming a full-fledged member of the Mafia might have a little more to it than just that ritual. For one thing, there's a condition that you can't fake. Most Italian Mafia groups require anyone involved to be Italian or have Italian background and be sponsored by another made man, so a Dutch criminal might be out of luck. They also have to take the Oath of America, a code of silence and honor that represents the Mafia's values. They then become an official soldier in the Mafia. But is there another, deadlier requirement for joining the Mafia? It's been a persistent 
constant rumor about the mafia for decades, and it frequently makes its way into Hollywood portrayals. Do you truly have to kill someone to become a full? that you play the music in the stadium. So you're the real DJ. Yeah, I like that. I like that. This is Rise and Run the Playlist, where we build NFL team playlists on Apple Music. DJ, what you gonna pick next? Uh, Return of the Mac by Mark Morris. Ooh. Khalil Mack, one of my teammates. He played for the Raiders. Every time he played against him, you know, I just feel like he got that chip on his shoulder. And he just went crazy. It was a game i never seen before. He had like six yeah. plus sacks. And uh, it just felt like Return of the Mac, you know what I mean? made man. It used to be a requirement to commit a contract killing to become eligible, both to show loyalty and to weed out any undercover officers who wouldn't be willing to go that far. No killings for personal reasons were allowed, so the victim was usually an enemy of the mafia or a member of the family who had betrayed them or screwed up badly enough to earn a permanent retirement. But this bloody tradition might be dying out. Forcing a new soldier to earn their bones with a killing might be a good way to prove loyalty, but it's also messy and attracts attention. Back in Sicily and in the old days when the mafia had infiltrated law enforcement and government, they could get away with it and cover up the bodies. So having the tradition was worth it. But now, with the FBI and local government on their trail and the mafia at only a fraction of its old strength, forget about it. Killing someone every time a new soldier joins the mafia would paint a giant target on their back. And once you're in, you'd better be ready to abide by the code of conduct. A made man has some simple rules to follow, starting with the most important to be loyal. The mafia takes loyalty and secrecy seriously, and interfering with the syndicate's interests or informing on them is the quickest way to a fast and brutal exit. The Mafia also commands its members to be rational and not pick fights they can't win, to be a man of honor who respects women and the chain of command, and to represent the Mafia well. This means showing class, independence, and courage. Well, as much of these traits as any member of a crime syndicate can show. But the Mafia does have standards many criminals don't. For one thing, the Mafia is looking for a specific type of criminal. They don't want loose cannons who seem to be in the game only for the pleasure and cause more damage than they need to. That was what disqualified Mad Sam DiStefano from joining the Chicago mob. The brutal loan shark loved to kidnap, torture, and kill people and was frequently used by the mob as a feared enforcer. But his sadistic Lee, as well as the rumors that he worshipped the devil, meant the mafia was never willing to bring him in as a full member. For one thing, Di Stefano was too unpredictable, and they didn't trust him to keep their secrets. And sometimes it's not who you are, it's who you know. Another group of people is never going to get to see that sacred mafia initiation rite. Anyone who's too close to a police officer. Police officers are immediately disqualified, of course because the temptation to play both sides would be too much. Anyone who is attended or applied to law enforcement is out, and many times the Mafia will shy away from anyone who has too many families in the business. Of course, rules are meant to be broken, and quite a few Mafia bosses have brought in corrupt police or corrections officers because they have useful connections that can give the Mafia an edge in their district. And once you do manage to take that initiation right, you better take the blood oath seriously. It's one of the most common tropes in Mafia movies. The made man failed his boss, and he's taken off to be snuffed out for humiliation the family. Is it actually true? Well, as usual, Hollywood is taking some liberties. An organization that killed off its soldiers at the first mistake would likely have a pretty hard time with recruitment. But there are certain offenses that will get you a 22 caliber exit from the Mafia. These include killing or making an attempt
impact on the life of a fellow made man, committing crimes against the code of the mafia, or stealing from the mafia. But what about those most notorious mafia criminals, the dirty rats? Does everyone who testifies against the mafia have a target on their back? It's certainly a concern, because a good number of people in the witness protection program testified against organized crime syndicates. But the FBI knows how to cover up people's identities, and it's rare for anyone in the program to actually be discovered and targeted, unless they let themselves be known. But even some turncoat mafiosos who did go public, like Sammy the Bull Gravano, went on to leave the program and write books about their time in the mafia, and survived, although they rarely managed to stay out of legal trouble. And as the secrets were exposed, the organization evolved. The government knows more about how the mafia functions than ever before, and the crime syndicate has had to change its ways. While it used to be an incredibly insular group, it now works more with other ethnic mobs, particularly the Russian mafia, along with some notorious motorcycle gangs. The mafia is dialed back, serving as the enforcer for its own criminal business, often letting other partners take the heat and dish out the brutality. They have a mix of legal and illegal businesses that make it easier to confuse the authorities and cover their dealings up. And in one big way, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Once the first mafia member testified before Congress, the code of Omerta would never be the same. While the mafia still strongly discourages anyone sharing their secrets, it's become commonplace to take deals when arrested by the feds. Not only are the foot soldiers taking deals when they need to, but some of the most prominent bosses have tried to avoid harsh penalties by spilling everything to the government. And that's created quite a few vacancies that the underbosses are happy to fill. And yes, they're still taking new members. But remember, don't call them, they'll call you. And when you get that call, you better be ready to shed a little blood for your new family. The FBI has gone after some of the most notorious targets around. Spies, terrorists, assassins, and a magazine publisher. Why would the FBI go after Hugh Hefner? And how did this result in a body count? Of course, Hugh Hefner was no ordinary magazine publisher. He was one of the most famous and infamous figures in the 20th century America. And the legendary dirty old man was equally loved and hated. For most people who knew him, he was a larger-than-life man who lived in a massive mansion surrounded by beautiful, much younger women nicknamed Bunnies. He was primarily associated with one word, both the title of his most famous creation and the word that epitomized his lifestyle, Playboy. But he didn't start out as a legend of controversy. Everyone has to start somewhere, and Hefner grew up in a normal Midwestern household and was raised Methodist. His mother even wanted him to become a missionary, but Uncle Sam came calling instead. In the 1940s, he served in the Army as a writer for a military newspaper. That kicked off his passion for writing and journalism, and he went to college and later started at the bottom of the magazine world, working as a copywriter for Esquire. He believed in his dream, but Esquire didn't quite agree. They denied him a $5 raise, so he quit in 1952. It would be one of the biggest butterfly effect moments in the history of journalism. Hefner had a dream, and he took out a loan and investments to launch his own magazine. One of those investments was from his own devout mother, who didn't like the idea but believed in her son's dream anyway. With 8,000 bucks, he kicked off a magazine initially planned to be called Stag Party, but instead he wisely named it Playboy. With the intention of it being a classy gentleman's magazine, it would have journalism, glamour shots, lifestyle tips, and of course some revealing photos of the most beautiful women in the world. And the first issue's cover star? None other than Marilyn Monroe. And it would turn Hugh Hefner into a legend. Gentlemen prefer blondes? That was